These revealed not only that Schwartz had been badly beaten up, but his neck had been cut so deeply that it had severed both of his carotid arteries and his neck muscles were fully exposed, and his body had more than 36 stab wounds. Michael Privetera's end hadn't been any prettier. His skull had been fractured, his throat slashed, and he had suffered 21 deep stab wounds. Although the troopers might have hoped that all future media attention would focus on these savage killings, not those of the hostages, it was clear to both doctors that the real news story here was how many of its own men the state had killed and how many prisoners had been shot to death when they themselves had no guns. Once the public knew how many men had died from trooper bullets, Edlin suspected, all hell was going to break loose. And he also knew it wasn't going to be long before this news broke, given that newspaper reporters were besieging his office with requests for more information. With each passing hour, Dr. Wendell Ames, the director of the Monroe County Health Department, grew more worried about the media. Indeed, he specifically asked Dr. Edlund not to speak to reporters until something official was set up, because, as he said, we don't want a trial in the press in advance of the investigations that are to be done. As soon as Governor Rockefeller's team heard what Edlund was discovering, they too panicked. The governor's office immediately sent its own directive that no news be leaked and made clear that Edlund's autopsies were going to be reviewed before any news conferences were called. To the dismay of all parties concerned, however, this news could not be contained. For starters, it was obvious to anyone who had been in the Emmy's office and had seen the bodies that they were riddled with bullets and buckshot. And as soon as the hostages' autopsies were completed and their bodies were released to funeral homes, countless other people would be able to see their wounds. But what really forced their hand was that Edlin's office supervisor leaked the autopsy findings to Dick Cooper, a reporter at a local paper, the Rochester Times Union. Cooper ran back to his car and headed for the city room to file the story. I knew the information I had was important, but the weight of my knowledge did not hit me until I was on the road. If the hostages did not die from slashed throats and did in fact die of bullet and buckshot wounds, then they must have been shot by the state police who were sent into cell block D to save them. When Dick told his colleagues at the paper, they were stunned. Another Times Union reporter, Lawrence Beaupre, recalled hearing the news. I gasped. Everyone knew what that meant, since the prisoners reportedly had no firearms at all. Once Cooper broke the story of the gunshot wounds, suddenly the shy, unassuming Dr. John Edlund was thrust into the nation's spotlight. At 3 o'clock p.m. Tuesday, September 14, Edlund held a national press conference. In it, he gave only brief statements regarding his autopsy findings, and then he took a few questions. Still, the effect of his words was electrifying. Attica observers like Arthur Eve, while appalled by Edlund's revelations, could not have been more grateful for this Emmy's commitment to the truth. As he put it some months later, thank God for an honest medical examiner whose integrity was questioned for weeks by those whose integrity is questionable. With guilt, Eve recalled that he too had repeated those lies about the throat slashings that evening in reporting to a large black group in Buffalo. I did not conceive that the governor would so debase the truth in order to justify his actions. Within minutes of Edlin's press conference, 
the offices of Governor Rockefeller were bedlam. As Rockefeller attorney Michael Whiteman later put it, news of Edlin's findings staggered us. They had watched in dismay as Dr. Edlin stood in front of a bank of reporters and calmly stated, the first eight autopsies were on the cases identified to us as hostages. All eight cases died of gunshot wounds. He then went on to say that only one hostage had a slight slash on the back of his neck. Rockefeller heard the news at his Fifth Avenue apartment in New York and was tremendously upset by what he later described as a very unfortunate and embarrassing situation. He knew that he had to get to his office right away. He was not yet ready, however, to talk to the press. He managed to elude throngs of reporters waiting outside for his reaction to Edlin's report by slipping through a side door when he left his apartment. He escaped them once again by entering a back door of his office. But the governor's attempt to spin Edlin's revelations had already begun. Much of it focused on trying to cast doubt on the doctor's competence and integrity. 25. Stepping Back Before making any public statement, Governor Rockefeller wanted to find out if Dr. Edlin's findings were correct. His main advisor at Attica, Robert Douglas, immediately advised George Infante, one of the top-ranking NYSP officials who had been on the scene during the retaking and its aftermath, to make an extensive investigation and take notes on wound marks and so forth, so that we would have a record to make sure that the coroner's findings were accurate. Rockefeller also dispatched Assistant Attorney General Anthony Simonetti, the man who would be conducting Fisher's official investigation into what had happened at Attica, to meet personally with Edlund about his autopsies. When Edlund sat down with Simonetti, it was clear to him that state officials were very upset about his findings and that they were now planning to have someone double-check his work. Sure enough, by 7.30 p.m. on September 14, he was informed that Dr. Henry Siegel of the Westchester County Medical Examiner's Office would go to the various funeral homes where the hostages' bodies had been sent to re-examine them. Dr. Siegel wasn't the only state official to be visiting those funeral homes. Terrified about what might come out about the retaking, Troopers went out to obtain affidavits from directors and employees of these morgues, stating that there were in fact no gunshot wounds to the hostages. Meanwhile, on both the 13th and 14th, troopers were themselves running around to various morticians' parlors and attempting to look at bodies to see whether or not they could discern injuries other than those which were reported to have been recorded by the medical examiner, and attempting to lean on funeral personnel to cover up the fact that gunshot wounds had killed the hostages. Carl Vallone's widow, Anne, later recounted getting a call from the mortician at Gilmartin's funeral home, who wondered what he should do because, as he told her in a hushed breath, a bunch of state troopers wanted to be alone with his body. An employee of the H.E. Turner Funeral Home on Main Street in Batavia received his own visit at home from troopers who wanted him to certify that slain hostage Richard Lewis had no visible bullet wounds on the body. And when the widow of Edward Cunningham went to see her husband's body at Marley's funeral parlor in downtown Attica, to her surprise, she was greeted by Mr. Marley himself. Looking harried and scared, Marley proceeded to take her into the room where her husband's body lay, 
put a finger to his lips, looked nervously around the area to make sure that none of the many troopers in the building were watching, and then slowly turned the body over so she could see for herself that he had been shot in the head. The prisoners' bodies, unlike the hostages' bodies, had not been sent to funeral homes, nor would they be for several more days, because Simonetti prevented the medical examiner's office from releasing them. Sometime later that night, or early on the morning of the 15th, Edlund was told that, in addition to Westchester County M.E. Henry Siegel, Dr. Michael Botton, the pathologist who years later would become well-known as the chairman of the Forensic Pathology Panel of the House Select Committee on Assassinations that reinvestigated the John F. Kennedy assassination, would also be reviewing each of the autopsies. Before even getting results from the new autopsies they had ordered, officials from the Department of Corrections began a concerted effort to raise public concern about Edlin's political views and, thus, his professional integrity. Gerald Houlihan, the PR director for DOCS, not only made sure that reporters knew that a top pathologist was being flown up to check the findings of this clown the coroner, Dr. Edlund, but others were also spreading the rumor that Edlund was a radical left-winger. It soon became gospel both that there were eyewitnesses who saw the hostages being murdered by having their throats cut, and also that there were various types of arms in the possession of the inmates that could have inflicted bullet-type wounds. Deputy Commissioner of Corrections Wim Van Eckern, without any hard evidence, suggested in his own statement to the press that the gunshot-like wounds might have come from so-called zip guns made by the prisoners. Then, DOCS announced that five National Guard teams would be going to Attica to sweep the yards for metal weapons that might have been buried by these same prisoners. The governor's office felt no need to comment publicly on much of anything pending verification of his autopsy results by outside experts. Throughout the afternoon and evening of September 14, the door to Rockefeller Press Secretary Ronald Majorana's office remained locked, even though at least 25 assembled newsmen waited outside in the adjacent press room. Still, there was one man who would most definitely expect some sort of explanation of these new revelations. President Richard Nixon. Before Rockefeller managed to reach the president, though, Nixon had already made the strategic decision to support the governor publicly. In fact, John Ehrlichman had already broken the news to him that troopers at Attica were the ones who had killed the hostages, to which Nixon could only gasp, Oh, God. Since he had already decided that this was a black business, though, Nixon still believed that Rockefeller had done exactly the right thing. As he put it about the governor, he's got a hell of a lot of guts, and what is more, he felt that we have got to be tough on this, because this involved the Angela Davis crowd, the Negroes. Ehrlichman agreed. In his view, what really drove Rockefeller's decisions at Attica was that the word is around that this is a signal for the black uprising. That's got him a little worried. In any case, as Nixon pointed out, by standing with the governor on this, Rockefeller owes us one now. That is just a matter of fact. And thus, when Rockefeller spoke to Nixon about the Edlin revelations, all was fine. Nixon made it clear that he thought the governor had had to make a very hard decision, and he gave him his assurances that he would support him. As the president pointed out to Ehrlichman in the Oval Office, 
First, they started it all. Second, they murdered one. There is no question. Third, they threatened to murder the others. What the hell? It looked pretty good in my opinion. Again, Ehrlichman was in full agreement. If nothing else, he noted, the four-to-one kill ratio is going to give convicts in other prisons a second thought. Members of the press, however, were now far more critical of Rockefeller's actions. Indeed, from the second the Times Union piece about the results of Dr. Edlin's autopsies appeared, reporters from virtually all outlets were furious at having been misled because they too now had to scramble to explain why they had so readily printed outrageous stories of castration and throat slashings without a shred of corroboration. Many sought out Gerald Houlihan, the man who had first told them these tales, and began shouting at him angrily. Houlihan only escaped by promising them that Oswald would soon answer their questions. At 11 o'clock the night of Tuesday, September 14, Oswald found himself standing just inside the main gate of Attica, talking to a crowd of reporters and conceding that the throat-slashing stories were false. But, he reminded reporters, you know, I never told you this. As for how the hostages might have been shot, the commissioner offered up the possibility that hostages could very well have been used as shields or forced into the gunfire. And, lest the reporters miss the real point about the dangers the state police had faced, Oswald went on, approximately 400 homemade weapons were recovered in the prison area directly after the action to recover the prison. Today, additional hundreds of weapons were uncovered, and minesweepers are now being used to uncover other weapons. In the absence of any satisfactory answer from either the governor's staff or the Department of Correctional Services regarding how they could have given the press such serious misinformation, reporters began their own damage control. Some journalists insisted that they had done the best reporting they could have based on the evidence they were given. As Stephen Isaacs from the Washington Post put it, perhaps the press can go too far in self-flagellations because it was the commissioner of corrections himself who, slowly moving his head from side to side as if in mourning and pointing to the prison yard below, told me that, yes, a hostage had been castrated right down there. Other reporters were willing only to admit that their coverage had been sloppy, but maintained that it had not been at all dishonest. There had been, many argued, a number of alleged eyewitness accounts to what they had reported. As the AP News Service explained it, for example, its reporters had covered the events at Attica as they had because this was the story they had been told, had heard, and had good reason to believe. Indeed, it was not the case, as some critics of the coverage had suggested, that the press was too ready to accept as fact the word of the officials. According to the AP, it had set up a coverage command post in a private home 150 yards from prison walls, and the very first stories reporters filed were not from DOCS, but were based on the sounds of the assault, the choking odor of tear gas that spread over the prison walls, and what some reporters were able to pick up monitoring police radio. The first news of the hostages' deaths had, they maintained, come to them in the gasping, choking voices of those who had been inside, in fragments of conversations as they stumbled, walked, or were led away. The fact that an official representative from the state, Gerald Houlihan, had appeared at Attica's gate at 11.15 on the morning of the assault and had said categorically 
that several hostages had their throats slashed had only confirmed what they had been hearing firsthand. However, there were reporters who felt guilty about the lies they had perpetuated and sought to grapple in print with the reasons why they had proceeded with their stories when there had been virtually no hard evidence to support them. As two reporters from the New York Post acknowledged ruefully, everyone, prisoners and prison officials, mediators, the Rockefeller people, the press, tended to believe whatever confirmed their own preconceptions, their own fears. More state-critical stories might have followed Edlin's revelations had it not been for the attempts of editors to manage reporters' stories, if not outright censor them. The two reporters from the New York Post who had offered mea culpas were forced to redraft that particular piece countless times because their paper's editor-in-chief, Dorothy Schiff, felt strongly that each draft was flagrantly biased in favor of the inmates and certain members of the Observer's Committee. In her opinion, our staffers reflect the opinion of the radicals and the liberals, who are inclined to confuse these hardcore criminals with rebellious students, the black ones anyway. In Schiff's view, a better story to write on Attica would be one that explored why the individual committed whatever crime he was convicted of. How does he feel now about what he did then? Is he defensive, or does he think it was a mistake, or is he repentant? Reporters were also under pressure from state officials. When the Washington Post's Stephen Isaacs learned that a hostage at Attica had been hit during the retaking with a dum-dum, an expanding bullet considered so maiming that the 1906 Geneva Convention banned them from use in international warfare, he first corroborated the story and then decided to print it, only to receive a call from the press spokesman for Deputy Attorney General Robert Fisher, who denied that the story was true, and then, according to Isaacs, asked me not to report the story. The Washington Post, he said, would be acting irresponsibly to publish such unconfirmed inflammatory material. While members of the press were trying to do their job of getting at the truth, so too was Dr. Michael Bodden, whom state officials had hired to redo Edlin's autopsies. When Dr. Bodden first arrived from New York City on Wednesday, September 15, both Commissioner Oswald and Superintendent Mancusi stared at him in dismay. In vetting possible candidates, Walter Dunbar had demanded that whoever was chosen to do the autopsy reviews be someone who was politically clean, as this was not a medical matter, it's a political administrative thing. So Oswald and Mancusi accordingly expected someone older, buttoned down, someone more bureaucratic, yet there stood a man who was 37, had long hair, and looked like a hippie. Oswald was certain there had been a mistake. Still, both men tried to make the best of the situation. Oswald made it clear to Baden that Edlund must have had some political agenda, a communist plot of some kind. Otherwise, why else would Edlund lie? To Baden, the idea that Edlund was part of a communist plot did not seem plausible. In fact, Edlund was known among MEs as a right-winger, and, more to the point, he was also very good. But there was no use in arguing. All he could do was get to work. Before he set out that morning, Botten had called Dr. Edlin to let him know that he was going to view the bodies of some of the hostages and then come to his office at 5 o'clock p.m. for a critique. At 9 o'clock a.m., an hour before his call from Botten, Edlin had already met with Westchester County's M.E., Dr. Siegel, 
who had viewed five of the eight hostage bodies the night before. To Edlin's relief, but not surprise, Siegel confirmed the presence of gunshot wounds. Edlin fully expected Botten to do the same. Botten, committed to reviewing all of the autopsy findings in person, proceeded to visit the various funeral homes where the hostages' bodies lay, and also scheduled time at the Monroe County Morgue to re-examine bodies and go over previous autopsy findings. The cause of death for all of the hostages was as clear to Botten as it had been to Edland. Gunshot wounds. When Botten's work concluded, days after Edland had first broken the news that all deaths were from gunfire, Deputy Attorney General Fisher called for all of the M.E.s who had worked on the bodies, Edland, Abbott, Botten, and Siegel, to meet with Anthony Simonetti, along with other members of the Task Force on Organized Crime and members of the NYSP back at Attica Prison. Nervously, Edland and Abbott got into the car sent for them and soon found themselves again, explaining the results of the autopsies they had conducted. Over six grueling hours, the doctors answered questions regarding their findings. But no matter how the questions were posed and how much the NYSP officials wished differently, the answers remained the same. It was the consensus of the pathologists present that they agreed on the causes of death and that such a statement should be released. Still, the state officials present at Attica were unwilling to accept these conclusions and ended the meeting with plans to hold another meeting on the subject on Thursday, September 23. Acting independently, Dr. Bodden and Dr. Siegel went ahead and published their findings in their press releases, now a full week after the assault on Attica had ended. The doctors not only stood by Edlin's original finding, but, most disturbingly for state officials, Dr. Bodden had stated that, in his opinion, six hostages had been shot in such a way that looked like an execution. This, he explained, was because a trooper had discharged buckshot at a prisoner and the spray of pellets had hit these hostages in their heads. However, he also offered state officials one bit of good news. Under considerable pressure from state and police officials to consider scenarios other than deliberate homicide for how prisoners such as L.D. Barkley had come to be killed, Bodden had re-examined Barkley's autopsy report and concluded that the bullet had gone in sideways. It was a tumbling bullet, which had hit something else first, which meant it hadn't been meant for Barkley originally. This finding was crucial because it suggested that, contrary to the first-hand accounts of prisoners and state politician Arthur Eves' own first-hand report, that Barkley had been alive a full hour after the retaking, he had not been deliberately killed by a state trooper after the incident was over, but rather during the initial retaking. For many decades to come, Baden's autopsy would stand as the definitive answer to the question of L.D. Barkley's death, seeming to exonerate the New York State Police of any wrongdoing. Edland felt a huge sense of relief that Baden's overall findings about the many deaths at Attica matched his own. He had endured so many threatening phone calls, so many chilling sightings of trooper cruisers idling outside his home, and so much hate mail that he needed Botten's support. One handwritten unsigned letter sent to him on September 14 had said, May your throat be slashed and violence come upon you and your family. As unnerved as Edland was, though, he never had any intention of backing down, because you have to call them as you see them. Still, 
He considered the day he went public with his findings on the Attica victims the worst day of my life. Sadly, the threats and character assassinations would continue to plague Edland for many years to come. Once Baden publicly confirmed that all deaths at Attica on the 13th had been caused by law enforcement, state officials had no choice but to acknowledge these facts. But, ever on the offensive, in the news conference held jointly by Deputy Attorney General Robert Fisher and Major John Monaghan of the New York State Police, the state chose, as one later critic put it, not to apologize for or correct the false press release about the stabbing and castration, but instead to show pictures of all the weapons found in D-Yard, clubs, knives, screwdrivers, and hammers. As for the large number of wounded and dead, none of whom had in fact died from any of these weapons, the state explained simply that many of the men had been shot either accidentally in the crossfire or from ricocheting bullets. Now Rockefeller was ready to speak with the press too, only his second meeting with reporters since the retaking. The governor also promoted the crossfire explanation for the retaking-related deaths at Attica, and he returned to his central argument that he had had no choice but to order that the prison be retaken by force. This time, though, he went much further, suggesting that there had been consensus among all parties, including the Observers Committee, that the retaking was necessary. Incredibly, he said, the decision to use force had not been made until after Tom Wicker of the New York Times, along with other committee members, had agreed no other move could be made. Regarding his decision not to come to Attica, he maintained that it would have been irresponsible for him to meet with dangerous criminals, and it would have been bad public policy to set such a precedent. Rockefeller's statement followed the playbook set out for him by his speechwriter. He was to focus on the philosophy of the actions taken, initial reasonableness, willingness to meet legitimate complaints, the rejection of concessions that would tear apart the social order, the judgments to act before deterioration progressed further, the rejection of social change through violence, coercion, blackmail, etc. Those who had served as observers at Attica were stunned by Rockefeller's rewriting of such recent history. As Herman Badillo told anyone who would listen, it was made absolutely clear to Rocky's staff that they were not asking the governor to come in physical contact with the prisoners. The idea was to have the committee act as a shuttle between the prisoners and the governor and possibly have the governor address the inmates over the public address system. Even members of the press were taken aback that, given recent reports regarding what had caused such carnage at Attica, Rockefeller was still claiming that he had done everything possible to avoid this ugliness and, perhaps worse, was now claiming that the deaths at Attica, due to crossfire, were morally, if not legally, justified homicide. New York Post columnist James A. Wexler simply couldn't believe that the governor would make no concession to the fact that there had indeed been alternatives to a retaking with guns. As he put it, the Tombs riots the previous year were halted without a shot being fired, without a single fatality among hostages, prisoners, or guards, and without general amnesty. New York City Mayor John Lindsay, who had faced not one but several major jail protests in his city the previous year, also criticized the governor's handling of Attica. Lindsay reminded the press that he had met with rebellious prisoners and he had finally quelled the insurrections at the Manhattan and Queens houses of detention 
with unarmed correction officers rather than armed policemen. To drive home the point, Lindsay added, not a single firearm was permitted when correction officers went in. Still, many people sided with the state, including family members of the slain hostages. Juanita Werner, who lost two family members in the retaking, continued to insist that the state police did not kill all of those hostages, even after Edlin's findings were confirmed. As John D'Arcangelo's widow remembered, my entire family believed that somehow, no matter what we were told, the inmates must have gotten guns, because it defies logic that anyone would be killed by their own employer. Dead hostage Elmer Hardy's brother Jim said that he could accept that some, but not all, of the eight were killed by police bullets. Cindy Elmore, the daughter of an Attica CO, Lieutenant Elmore, agreed. Townspeople do not believe troopers killed the hostages because it's just not true. When guard John Monteleone's brother heard the news that Officer Bullets had killed John, he simply said, Bull. He too worked at Attica, but had decided to quit his job because he felt there had been too much coddling of the prisoners from day one of the riot. As he put it, I don't want to work there so long as this state is run by the Oswalds, the Dunbars, and the niggers. In fact, as one reporter noted after canvassing the various local towns near Attica, few people can be found on the rustic roads who accept the medical examiner's report that the hostages who died during the state assault on the prison were killed by gunshots, even though the governor himself had just conceded that those shots had probably come from the weapons of state policemen. Whatever the rest of America may have thought, there was one group of people that was outraged by both the actions and the inaction of the state, family members of the prisoners at Attica. At the same time that Dr. Edland was being attacked for his autopsy findings on the hostages, many of the children, parents, and partners of the prisoners still had no idea whether their loved ones were alive or dead, injured or well. The state had yet to communicate with them in person, or even to release a list of the casualties. Their indignities and trauma would continue. 26. Funerals and Fallout In the days and weeks that followed the retaking of Attica Prison, the volume of calls from the worried relatives of Attica prisoners who had heard no word on whether their loved ones survived continued to jam the switchboards at the prison and at DOCS in Albany. Even Dr. John Edland initially hadn't any idea who most of the prisoners were on the slabs in his morgue. Recognizing that these were people with families who would want to know the fate of their loved ones, though, Edland had fingerprinted each of the bodies for identification to be made on that basis. Edland was one of the few state employees who felt that these men needed to be treated humanely in death. When a DOCS official finally released a full list of inmate casualties with their backgrounds to the media outside Attica on September 16, indicating the crime each slain man had been convicted of after reading his name, according to reporters, prison guards threw up clenched fists and shouted, White Power. Still no one from the state of New York ever contacted the families of the dead prisoners by phone or personal letter to tell them the fate of their loved one. Most had to hear this terrible news over the radio, and only then because Howard Coles, 
a popular African-American radio personality from Rochester, had decided to dedicate his popular broadcast to providing his listeners with whatever information the DOCS released about the dead as soon as it was made available. This was how Laverne Barkley finally found out what had happened to her son. For days, she had been trying to reach someone at the prison for word of L.D., and when she got nowhere with state officials, she decided to drive across town to the headquarters of FIGHT, the social justice organization run by Minister Franklin Florence, one of the observers, to see if she could get him to help her. But before she ever got to the police, while she was still circling the street looking for a parking space, she heard her son's name being read over the radio. Her young daughter Tracy, who was sitting next to her in the passenger seat, watched in great distress as her mother almost lost control of the car, pulled over, and collapsed in grief. Now that L.D. was dead, Mrs. Barkley berated herself for never having taken his complaints about his treatment at the prison seriously enough. Just before the uprising, L.D. had said to her, You can't imagine what it is like here. I know that there is a possibility that I shall never leave here alive. Other parents had their own burdens of guilt. The grief-stricken parents of Lorenzo McNeil felt that they were in some way responsible for the death of their 29-year-old son because they had actually persuaded him to give up his parole and return to prison for the last 18 months of his sentence so that he would be guaranteed to keep away from trouble on the outside and be able to start fresh when his time was over. Talking to reporters as she sat in her home in Queens, his mother recounted how he had tried to keep a job, but every time they would find out he was a convict, they would fire him. We were afraid he would go out and steal some money again, and it was better to send him back again than to let him do that. We thought we were doing the best thing at the time. Elizabeth Durham, the mother of 20-year-old slain prisoner Alan Durham, was also grieving deeply and also feeling that her son might still be alive if she had acted differently. Alan had just written to tell her that he was taking up a trade in tailoring and did not want to be transferred from Attica until he finished, and she hadn't tried to talk him out of that decision. And then there were the families that didn't get the news via the newspaper or radio, but received notification via telegrams that eventually came from the prison. As one such notification read, Regret to inform you that your husband, Raymond Rivera, number 29533, has deceased. The body reposes at this institution. As late as September 18, some inmate families had still received no notification. Even having official confirmation of a son's, brother's, or husband's death at Attica did not necessarily mean closure for many family members because it remained unclear where their loved one's body was or when the state was going to release him for burial. Arranging for funerals was thus most difficult. It wasn't until the afternoon of September 17 that Vincent Mancusi sent Dr. Edlund a telegram finally authorizing him to release all bodies in your establishment to the authorized undertakers, and then it took still more days before the bodies arrived at the places where they would be prepared for interment. Plans were made to send the bodies of Samuel Melville and Barry Schwartz to Parsky Funeral Home. L.D. Barclay's remains were to go to Latimer Funeral Home in Rochester and other prisoner bodies to other places such as N.J. Miller's Funeral Parlor and Hauner Funeral Home. However, 
For 17 dead prisoners still at the morgue, there was no clear idea where they might go to be buried. The Fortune Society had advised Mancusi that it would gladly bury any inmates not claimed by family or anyone. Please advise. But the superintendent was not at all eager to talk about the logistics of prisoner funerals with this organization or any other. Once L.D. Barclay's mother learned of her son's whereabouts, she began planning his funeral, which turned into a community-wide memorial and celebration of his life. The event took place on September 20, and it brought the area around Rochester's AME Memorial Zion Church to a standstill. The old red brick church in the midst of an urban renewal project in Rochester's black community was crowded by a throng of more than 1,000 overflowing into the surrounding streets, which were jammed with residents who had come to pay their respects to L.D. Canon St. Julian Simpkins from St. Simon's Episcopal Church presided over the service. The congregation sang spirituals, including O Freedom, and three powerful eulogies lauded L.D., as a martyr to end man's inhumanity to man. The congregation was reminded that L.D. had been in Attica only for a parole violation, and that the original crime for which he had been on parole consisted of forging a money order for $124.50. Many local luminaries, including one of the Attica observers, Minister Raymond Scott, president of Rochester's Fight, gave passionate speeches about Attica and L.D.'s struggle for human rights in that prison. At the conclusion of the service, a hearse at the head of a long motorcade took L.D. Barclay's body to Mount Hope Cemetery for burial. Four days later, the streets of Brooklyn, New York, were teeming with thousands of people who hoped to pay their respects to other prisoners killed at Attica. Before the funeral began at the Cornerstone Baptist Church, a sea of people surrounded the coffins of the six men as they were carried through the streets of Bedford-Stuyvesant. Inside the church, the walls vibrated with the thunder of impassioned speeches. People were gripped with anguish and fury as the service proceeded. But outrage trumped all other emotions when the church officials announced to the assembled crowd of mourners that the burials could not take place as planned. They had just been ordered to send three of the bodies back to the medical examiner's office in Rochester because of a dispute over their identity. At noon, the bodies of three men were removed from the church as the crowds looked on from the packed sidewalks, wondering if the indignities would ever cease. Other prisoner funerals took place with far smaller crowds and much less fanfare. For some of the prisoners who'd been killed at Attica, there was no ceremony. Like the Fortune Society, other community groups in New York City felt they had to do something about this and a number of groups came together for a series of meetings at Westminster Presbyterian, the church of Reverend C. Herbert Oliver. Reverend Oliver was a Brooklyn activist, known among African-American and Latino parents in this neighborhood as a supporter and former chairman of the Ocean Hill-Brownsville Experimental School District. Oliver wanted to find a way to bury the unclaimed dead of Attica. As he explained, the men who laid down their lives at Attica did a great service to me, you, the city, the state, and the world. Oliver and another Ocean Hill-Brownsville activist, Sonny Carson, helped jumpstart fundraising for those burials. Soon, additional organizations and individuals began raising money to help those prisoner families who wanted to bury their loved ones but had no money to do so.
The Urban League of New York and singer Aretha Franklin held a big fundraiser at the Apollo Theater in Harlem on behalf of victim families. Student groups at various schools around the country also collected donations. Students from Cornell University managed to collect $700 for families of deceased riot victims. To the surprise of several prisoner families, the Gannett Newspaper Group in Rochester included them when collecting funds for victims' families in its Lend a Hand program. Out of a total of $21,000 that was contributed for the families of those slain at Attica, however, the fund gave only $1,964 to three prisoner families, and the rest went to the families of hostages. The families who had lost a guard or civilian employee at Attica were just as grateful as the families of the inmates for the financial help they received, and in many cases they were just as needy. Many of the wives and children of the prison employees who had been killed in Attica had been plummeted into poverty by the loss of the sole breadwinner in the family. Edward Cunningham, one of the guard hostages, was survived by his wife and eight children. Funds came to the families from a variety of sources, including other COs who contributed to the Attica Family Memorial Fund. The families of William Quinn and nine of the slain hostages, Elon Werner, Ronald Werner, Elmer Hardy, Edward Cunningham, Herbert Jones, John Monteleone, Richard Lewis, Carl Vallone, and John D'Arcangelo were so grateful that on September 29, they took out a full-page ad in the local paper to thank all who offered us aid and assistance. As people said to us, they wrote, we have no words to express our grief. We now say to you, we have no words to express our gratitude. The first funeral to be held for a prison employee victim of the uprising was William Quinn's on September 15 at St. Vincent's in the village of Attica. Afterward, as his family sobbed and the community grieved alongside them at the graveside, many also expressed their anger that Russell Oswald was nowhere to be seen at this commemoration of Quinn's life and his service to the state of New York. When asked why he had not attended the funeral, Commissioner Oswald said, rather sheepishly, that it was because he thought there might have been resentments. The following day, John Monteleone was buried, leaving five children behind. Just as with some of the prisoners' funerals, some of the funerals for the slain guards were delayed because of ongoing controversies about the cause of their deaths. The funeral of Richard Lewis was delayed when his body was sent back for a second autopsy, this time by Michael Botton. And even though the funeral of John D'Arcangelo was held as planned on September 16, in Auburn at St. Mary's Church, his body was then returned to the Farrell Funeral Home to be examined by Dr. Siegel. In some cases, these delays meant that no family members were able to be present when the burials finally took place. September 17 was the day of the largest number of funerals for the slain hostages, when five men were buried. Elmer Hardy, Herbert Jones, Ronald Werner, Elon Werner, and Edward Cunningham. From early morning until late afternoon, there was scarcely a moment without a funeral, a cortege, or a graveside ceremony in progress, wrote a local reporter. And these commemorations brought prison guards and policemen from Maryland, Rhode Island, Pennsylvania, and around New York State to stand silently in ranks, saluting the coffins as they passed from funeral home to hearse, from hearse to church, from church to cemetery. Those who drove down Route 98 to attend the funerals 
would have seen a road lined with flags at half-mast in solemn tribute to the sacrifices made by the employees of the Attica Correctional Facility. Local stores were closed to honor the killed hostages, and many posted small signs printed in black ink saying, In respect, closing Friday, September 17. The day of mourning ended in the late afternoon at the gravesite of Herbert Jones, who had left behind a 20-month-old daughter. All of the funerals that day had been extremely emotional, but people were particularly struck by the senselessness of the death of Elon Werner, a humble man who had not been a guard but a senior accountant at Attica, and was regarded by many as a nonpareil, a man of gentle demeanor, quick to help others. No one could make sense of his having died a violent death. Emotions had also run high the day before, at the funeral of Carl Vallone, where the clergyman who presided over the graveside ceremony at St. Joseph's Cemetery delivered a fiery speech in which he warned that major prison upheavals would recur in New York State prisons unless a separate institution was open for inmates he described as hardcore revolutionaries. The very last hostage funeral was not held until October, when correction officer Harrison Whalen, after clinging to life for more than three weeks, finally died of his gunshot wounds. Whalen's passing increased to ten the number of guards and civilian employee hostages who had been killed because of the state's assault on the prison. Yet in all the weeks that had passed since the Attica uprising, and even after so many men had been laid to rest, no one from the state had ever come to explain to the families what had happened. Anne Vallone was so desperate to understand the circumstances of her husband's death that in October 1971, she made the quite extraordinary decision to write a heartfelt letter to former observer William Kunstler, whom most of Attica's townspeople reviled as a radical troublemaker, asking him, as someone who had been on the inside and seen so much firsthand, if he could help her to know what had gone so terribly wrong. To her surprise, Kunstler responded with his own emotional letter, trying, he said, to address the very perplexing questions you raise and to do his best to let her know how he felt about the tragic events of last September. Kunstler wanted Anne Vallone to know that he, and all of those who had served on the so-called negotiating committee, wanted desperately to settle the controversy without further bloodshed. As varied as we were, we became convinced on Sunday that, had the governor come and had we been given a few more days, we could have hammered out an agreement satisfactory to all sides. In fact, the only reason I insisted that Bobby Seal come was to aid us in convincing the inmates that proposals that were accepted by the commissioner on Saturday, as watered down as they were, were the best we could hope to get for them. Kunstler closed his letter by asking for her aid in calling for greater prison reform in America because, then, not only will men like your husband be far safer than they are now, but they will surely find their jobs infinitely more rewarding and creative than they can possibly be under present conditions. Instead of supervising resentful, desperate inmates, they will be associating with men and women who at least feel that they possess some shreds of human dignity and who can see some hope for themselves in the future. Whatever she decided, though, William Kunstler wanted Anne Vallone to know that he grieved for her and he believed in his heart that together they could do something, no matter how small or insignificant, to change places like Attica, so that the pain you are now enduring, which must be duplicated in more than 40 other homes, 
will never press down on any other human being, and so that no person will ever have to write again a letter such as you have written to me. He signed off in sorrow and hope. Nearly two months after Attica's retaking, Commissioner Oswald summoned about 50 employees and wives at a meeting in a Presbyterian church, without anyone in the community notifying the press to discuss what might lie ahead of them now that they were without a regular breadwinner. Overall, Oswald's message was a relief, albeit a bit strange. As June Fargo remembered it, the good news was that Commissioner Oswald told the men not to worry, to take six months off, because it was implied that they would be taken care of. Even better, each of the widows and the surviving hostages had already been given some checks, meager but most welcome, to help them get by. And yet, more ominously, they were clearly instructed in this meeting not to talk about what had happened. Although the CO families largely heeded this message, others in the nation were not so compliant. Many parties were determined not only to keep attention focused on Attica, but also to probe what was happening to the prisoners inside in the wake of the retaking. 27. Prodding and Probing Attorneys Herman Schwartz and William Hellerstein, who had obtained the temporary order from Judge Curtin late in the evening on September 13, remained determined to enter the prison to represent the prisoners and make sure they were safe. When Superintendent Mancusi violated that temporary order, refusing them entry into the prison, they feared the worst. The problem was, the lawyers weren't sure how to get Curtin to force the issue. As Schwartz put it, the lawyers were in a true catch-22 situation, since we couldn't show the need to get in if we couldn't get in, and if we couldn't show the need to get in, we wouldn't be able to get in. This is exactly what Attica's administrators were hoping for when they headed into the hearing that Judge Curtin had ordered for September 14, the day after the retaking. In the hearing, DOC Deputy Commissioner Walter Dunbar managed to persuade Curtin they were doing what was necessary to attend to the needs of the prisoners. No one was interrogating prisoners, he maintained, so there would be no need for their lawyers to come in. Curtin was sufficiently convinced. The prisoners' attorneys, however, were undeterred, for they were convinced that abuses were still occurring at Attica and adamant that they be let in to ensure that the abuses were stopped. On Wednesday the 15th, they finally obtained some concrete evidence of abuse that they hoped would re-engage Curtin. A National Guardsman named James Wilson came forward to provide excruciating and gruesome details that confirmed fears about how prisoners were being treated. He had witnessed physical assaults and medical neglect of prisoners' wounds and injuries, as well as a violent, highly charged atmosphere in which guards hurled racial insults and obscenities at the prisoners. And so Schwartz and Hellerstein got another meeting with Curtin the very next day to present this new evidence. The judge, however, was still unwilling to issue an order to admit them. What he did suggest, however, was that it might be possible for them to get in under the auspices of the so-called Goldman Panel, an observational body created by Governor Rockefeller just the day before. On the 15th, under great pressure to answer questions from many quarters about how the prisoners were being treated post-retaking, the governor had asked presiding judge Harry D. Goldman 
of the Appellate Division, 4th Judicial Department, to name a distinguished panel of impartial visitors to observe and report on this transitional period at the Attica State Correctional Facility, so that the public may be assured that the constitutional rights of the inmates are being protected. The panel included, among others, former Attica observer Clarence Jones, Dr. Austin H. McCormick, Executive Director of the Prisoner-Friendly Osborne Association, and Luis Nunez, National Executive Director, Aspira of America, an educational and leadership organization for the Puerto Rican community. Judge Curtin's instinct proved correct. Much to their surprise, the lawyers Schwartz and Hellerstein received a call later that same day telling them they would, in fact, be let in. So, along with the just-appointed Goldman panelists, on Friday, September 17, a team of prisoner rights attorneys entered Attica. The Goldman panelists were told they'd be allowed in the prison 12 hours a day, seven days a week, visiting cells, the hospital, halls, mess hall, and even HBZ block. Yet somehow they then got restricted. On their first visit, they were told they must leave by 5 o'clock p.m. and, thereafter, their hours of access were restricted to between 9 a.m. and 3.30 p.m., Saturday and Sunday, and from 9 o'clock a.m. to 5 p.m. weekdays beginning next Monday. Given that they had to interview many hundreds of men, and also were allotted only four rooms in the prison for this purpose, these time limitations were frustrating. At this rate, Schwartz noted dourly, it would take us weeks upon weeks upon weeks to interview them. The restricted schedule was Mancusi's way of making sure that he could still limit the impact that prisoner rights lawyers might have. He had argued strenuously against admitting the Goldman panelists, too, but Oswald made it clear he had no choice but to cooperate with them fully. The good news for the state was that the panelists and the prisoners' lawyers would be getting all of their logistical and liaison information from two people as interested in protecting the state as Oswald was, Rockefeller's lawyers, Michael Whiteman and Howard Shapiro. Even better, from the state's perspective, Whiteman had made it clear to the Goldman panel that its job was time-limited, approximately 30 days, and that the panel was not an investigative group. Rather, it was just there to monitor what was happening inside the prison. As soon as Goldman panel co-chairs Clarence Jones and Austin McCormick began walking around Attica, and also, eventually, visiting Attica prisoners now housed at Great Meadows on the 24th, Clinton on the 25th, and Greenhaven on the 27th, it became clear that even the simple task of monitoring would be arduous. At least 83 of the inmates they encountered had been so severely injured that they required surgical treatment and some were wounded so badly, so hurt, that they had to be interviewed at Meyer Memorial Hospital. Many men at Attica had not seen any medical personnel since the afternoon of the retaking, more than a week earlier, at which time doctors, including National Guardsmen and others, had insisted that their serious injuries not go untreated thereafter. It wasn't until the morning of September 21 that a new team of doctors actually began conducting medical examinations in the prison. Trying to make the clearly scared prisoners feel more comfortable, the Goldman panel had requested that there be at least three black doctors and two Spanish-speaking doctors on the panel to carry out the examinations. Eventually, a group of nine doctors was assembled 
to examine 1,220 prisoners and to make an inventory of their medical needs, all in a mere four hours on the 21st. But even with such a cursory look at these men, it was clear to these physicians that they were still in terrible shape, that they were suffering ongoing abuse from the guards, and that conditions in the prison were still unacceptable. As one of the doctors, Lionel Sifontes, reported, prisoners were still suffering from numerous gunshot wounds as well as first- and second-degree burns from the tear gas they'd been covered with in the first minutes of the assault. As noticeably, most of the prisoners were observed to have multiple body bruises, and this was true of all floors of cell block A. Dr. Sifontes minced no words about these bruises when he spoke to federal officials a month later. They were fresh, less than 48 hours old, and received since Monday, September 13, 1971. The bruises were apparently inflicted by a long, blunt instrument. As important, the Goldman panel-appointed doctors noted, prisoners were terrified of identifying who had been hitting them. One prisoner with bruises to back and cheek and a head dressing told the doctor that he had fallen down the stairs. Despite reports from the physicians it had called to Attica, Goldman panel members were more willing to call attention to the abuses that had already happened at Attica than ones still occurring. In its final report, for example, the panel noted that of the inmates who had been a part of the uprising, 63% had suffered a reprisal immediately following the assault, from a mild injury such as abrasions to a severe injury such as fractured ribs or a lacerated scalp to lost glasses or dentures. But it said next to nothing about what physicians like Dr. Sifontes had witnessed. And when the Goldman panel held its first press conference after canvassing prisoner injuries, they reported that their doctors had found no bruises or wounds inflicted since the 13th. As one Goldman panel monitor put it, from our observations at Attica, we are convinced that inmates are treated decently, with fairness, and without brutality by correction officers. Their physical needs are adequately met. Food is good, cells are clean, medical attention is provided. Inmates appear to be washed, shaven, and cleanly dressed. Such a conclusion struck many who knew anything about the retaking at Attica as dangerously dishonest. Various former Attica Observers Committee members, including Herman Badillo, demanded the resignation of the Goldman Committee and said that it should be disbanded because, among other things, it has been unable to guarantee the prisoner's physical safety. The composition of the panel had in fact bothered prisoner advocates from its inception, since so many of the monitors, even if officially seen as prisoner advocates, were also close friends with Rockefeller. The potential conflicts of interest at work here were perhaps even worse than they suspected. Panel co-chair Austin McCormick had written a personal letter to Rockefeller indicating support for the actions he had taken at Attica on September 13. I was disturbed and indignant over the unjust and unwarranted criticism you received for not going to Attica, he said. If you would have gone to Attica, he continued, you would inevitably have found yourself cheek by jowl with Mr. Kunstler and Bobby Seal, and some others little better than they. The governor, McCormick went on, was right to retake the prison as he did, since the Observers Committee had made rational negotiation well-nigh impossible at Attica. And yet, even though some Goldman panelists were sympathetic to Rockefeller, 
and the panel as a whole had been unwilling to mention the continuing and persistent abuses that their own doctors indicated were taking place, this monitoring body did insist that serious work needed to be done at Attica on behalf of the men locked up there. They called, for example, for a more permanent monitoring system to be set up in the prison and staffed by people unaffiliated with the prison, and, in view of allegations by inmates of post-riot beatings, they called for improvements in prisoner rights, including prisoners' greater access to legal counsel. Some improvements were eventually made at Attica thanks to the panel's recommendations. By the panel's last visit on November 15, the prison had two dentists, two nurses, and two part-time psychiatrists on staff for two days a week. But while this was a welcome development, prisoners also needed help securing replacement of their legal papers, necessary for appeals, parole applications, etc., which had been deliberately destroyed by the guards, as well as much more attention paid to their safety at the hands of these same guards. As important, and as even the panel had to acknowledge publicly, the danger of harassment of inmates still loomed at Attica, as did the likelihood of unjust retaliatory and inflammatory acts in parole and other areas. 28. Which side are you on? While members of the Goldman panel were insufficiently critical of state officials' treatment of prisoners at Attica, others across the country were much more outspoken in their outrage, taking to the pen and to the streets. Songwriters like John Lennon, for example, wrote powerful ballads to commemorate the prisoners at Attica, while activist James Foreman penned a poem to Attica, Attica, Attica. Black men, brown men, white men. Shot down at Attica by the command of Nelson Rockefeller and supported by the Nixon administration. Black women, brown women, white women. Families, friends, lovers, wives. Millions of people mourning the loss of those slaughtered at Attica, killed on American soil by weapons developed in the Vietnam War. Prisoner rights activist Angela Davis also authored an opinion piece, in her case for the New York Times, arguing strongly that the men at Attica needed support, particularly since, in the aftermath, officials would resort to equivocation, untruths, and myriad efforts to shift the blame onto the prisoners. In the wake of the Attica retaking, myriad rallies in support of the prisoners also took place across upstate New York, outside Elmira Prison, at the African Studies and Research Center on the Cornell University campus, and also Cornell's Rockefeller Hall, where they demanded, among other things, that the building be renamed Attica Hall. Other demonstrations took place in Albany, the state capital, and also the location of the Department of Correctional Services offices, which were in buildings known as the Twin Towers. The largest of the Albany protests involved about 500 demonstrators who marched for three miles through this city, to the steps of the Capitol. This group, described as mostly young and white, joined at least 300 others who had already congregated at the Capitol. Run, Rocky, run, Rocky, run, run, run. People of the world are picking up the gun, they chanted, while carrying pictures of the governor with the words, Wanted for Murder, the Butcher of Attica. 
Such public protests made New York's Commissioner of Corrections, Russell Oswald, extremely nervous. He already felt he was under tremendous pressure after the retaking, in no small part because there had been at least 15 bomb threats at the Twin Towers that resulted in evacuations since September 17. According to the commissioner, his wife was getting threatening calls as well. What is more, Oswald reported to Rockefeller, he felt personally harassed. There seems to be a relatively well-organized group called the Prisoner Solidarity Committee, he explained, which has decided to bird-dog all of my appearances. And, at one such appearance, they tried to take over the luncheon meeting, grabbed the microphone, kept chanting murderer, and carried huge banners insulting you and me. Many months after the retaking, protests against Rockefeller were still going strong, including some particularly high-profile events in Manhattan. At a gala hosted by the Cerebral Palsy Foundation of New York City in December, where the governor was to receive a humanitarian award, more than a thousand people showed up to picket. People from all walks of life came out against the governor's actions at Attica, including artists who paraded outside the Museum of Modern Art while demanding Rockefeller's resignation from the museum's board of trustees. Attica-related protests also exploded in other American cities right after the retaking. In Los Angeles, at least 150 people crowded into downtown on a sticky 90-degree day in September to show solidarity with the Attica prisoners and to call for prison reform nationwide. Over 75 African-American students at the University of Oklahoma in Norman blocked a one-way street for several hours, chanting and carrying signs, one which read, 30 brothers dead and things go on as usual. According to the National Student Association, the country's largest organization of college students, by October 1971, Attica teach-ins on prisons and prison reforms had been planned at more than 20 college campuses. To be sure, not all of the protests were critical of the state of New York's actions at Attica. There were also rallies in support of Governor Rockefeller, such as one held on Wall Street by a conservative student organization, Viva, Voices in Vital America, little more than a week after the retaking of Attica. Members of law enforcement, correction officers, and townspeople in upstate New York were all grateful to see this support of the governor since they feared that the anti-Rockefeller types would soon be protesting against them. Some Attica residents had decided to arm themselves in case this happened, and New York State troopers near the town were regularly on the lookout for troublemakers. They patrolled the highways into the big cities nearby as well, looking for anyone they thought might be a prisoner supporter. As entries in the NYSP's official call log read, 2.50 p.m., Trooper had stopped two carloads of blacks who claimed they were en route to Panther headquarters in Buffalo. And then, two hours later, 4.26 p.m., four blacks were stopped on thruway by patrol and advised they were en route to Panther headquarters in Buffalo. Troopers even kept tabs on former Attica observers Herman Schwartz and William Kunstler. And every time there was word of some protest, troopers were alerted and they worked with city and town officials to monitor the gatherings, if not prevent them from happening altogether. When rumors began circulating about a massive demonstration by outsiders planned for October 2 and approaching black invasions in Attica, the village's five-man board of trustees called an emergency meeting 
to decide how to respond. Among other things, they discussed arresting anyone parading without a permit as well as adding a curfew. Officials from the Department of Correctional Services were also worried about new protests erupting within their penal facilities and at Attica itself. The situation at Attica continues to be tense, Commissioner Oswald wrote to Rockefeller in December of 1971. And worse, he went on, the tension at Attica is seemingly an epidemic having spread to other facilities, causing severe problems in overtime payment to COs. Officials were particularly concerned about what might happen at Clinton Prison, where many Attica prisoners recently had been transferred, and which was already known to be a hotbed of discontent. Even before the rebellion at Attica, Herman Schwartz had observed that Clinton looks very serious. It may blow up, although there are so many state troopers there at the moment, probably that won't happen for a while. In the wake of Attica's retaking, the danger at Clinton had only grown, according to Oswald. Three months after Attica's end, he was worrying about the fallout at Clinton, noting in a memo to Rockefeller that a recent cell search of this prison had uncovered large numbers of hidden and buried weapons. Most of the prison protests in the wake of the Attica Rebellion and in support of those wounded and dead took place in states other than New York. On September 15, about 60 men at the Fulton County Jail in Atlanta, Georgia, initiated a lunchtime protest, having got the idea from the riot in New York. Prisoner protests also erupted on that day in the Cuyahoga County Jail in Cleveland and in Baltimore City Jail where 180 inmates tried to take a hostage and barricaded themselves in the Baltimore jail cafeteria in an apparent show of sympathy for inmates at Attica. That same day in Detroit, Michigan, a phalanx of 1,140 guards at the Wayne County Jail seized 150 weapons after FBI tip-offs that there was a planned rebellion. At Massachusetts Correctional Institution, Norfolk, 783 men began a four-day strike for prison reform that soon spread to a facility in Walpole. Female prisoners also erupted in solidarity with the men at Attica. Sixty-six women at the Federal Reformatory for Women in Alderson, West Virginia, launched a four-day rebellion, which they described as having started out as a memorial service for the dead inmates at Attica. In October 1971, there was an uprising at the Illinois State Penitentiary in Pontiac, a rebellion in a county courthouse jail in Dallas, Texas, a hostage-taking protest in a maximum security prison in Rahway, New Jersey, a hunger strike by 330 inmates at the Maine State Prison, and over the next month, many other upheavals in jails and prisons throughout the country. The year 1971 ended with a dramatic 10-hour rebellion on December 28 launched by men in the New York City jail system who were demanding changes to detention rules. This protest ended peacefully after city officials agreed to automatic bail review after 30 days' detention and to set a limit of 90 days for detention. News of what had happened at Attica reverberated through prisons as far away as Europe. In Paris, prisoners took hostages in their own Attica-inspired rebellion. COs were so terrified of prisoner rebellions after Attica that their unions again began to speak out loudly about the issue of workplace safety. The leadership of the main union for all state correctional employees in New York, 
AFSCME and its Council 82, believed that it had been DOCS policies that had led to the situation at Attica in the first place. As AFSCME President Jerry Worf put it, we believe that it is the obligation and the duty of government, in this case the state of New York, to provide secure and humane penal facilities. And yet, the state prisons are mostly crowded, decaying relics of penal theories discarded long ago. Indeed, he went further. The uprising there happened only after reasonable requests from the inmates were ignored by the state administration. It happened after unheeded warnings by members of our union who work at Attica, who could see and hear evidence of impending trouble. Union officials were insistent that they meet with the governor about what Attica meant for them. They currently were in negotiations with the state on several broad demands for changes in the prison system formulated by members of Council 82. And in their view, the uprising at Attica only strengthened their arguments for New York to bring about immediate and widespread change in the state's ill-administered prison system. Five of the ten hostages killed at Attica had been members of AFSCME and, as far as their union was concerned, the most tragic thing about the bloody riot and massacre is that it could have been avoided. If the state had listened to warnings from correctional officers, if administrators had shown a modicum of sensitivity in providing for the inmates, if the state had just listened, the revolt might never have occurred. So bad were tensions between the Union and the DOCS following the Attica retaking that Oswald felt compelled to report to the governor the negotiations so far have served more as confrontations and have not resulted in any purposeful outcome to date. State officials failed to deliver a satisfactory response to the Union's complaints about safety issues and, on September 22, the Union representing New York State's 8,000 prisoner workers, reacting to the Attica prison revolt, said today that they would lock all convicts in their cells October 7th unless Governor Nelson A. Rockefeller implements immediate reforms. The union president pointed out, We've been discussing these demands for 18 months with the administration and had nothing but lip service. I guess it takes 40 men who did not need to die. After Attica, prison employees' wives also began to speak out about the need to take workplace safety seriously. These women had formed a statewide organization that planned on lobbying legislators to address their husband's safety needs and to inform the public just how dangerous a job these men did. Commissioner Oswald was particularly disturbed by this group's activities because he did not feel that they represented him at all favorably. The information they pass along to various news media and legislators after these meetings, he told the governor, does not reflect what I have considered to be a good relationship. The few African-American correction officers working in the state system were also concerned about the problems at Attica, but they saw them from a different vantage point. A number of them became vocal that the causes and lessons of the Attica uprising have been grossly misunderstood by white officers and policymakers. In short, they felt that the DOCS was moving in the wrong direction in its desire to clamp down harder on inmates when it was such treatment that led to Attica in the first place. They also expressed concern about the treatment that black guards received from their white co-workers. As one black CO observed nervously since Attica, he can feel a question hanging in the air when he is among white officers.
Whose side are you on? Our side or the inmate's side? The reality for the prisoners who had survived the assault on Attica Prison on September 13 was that few from the Department of Correctional Services, or from the state more generally, were on their side. While it appeared from its announcement of Robert Fisher's appointment that the governor's office was organizing to go after those who had initiated the rebellion at Attica, it was doing virtually nothing to protect the men who survived it, the many still badly wounded from being abused, or to supply them with the medical care they desperately needed. And a full month after state officials had regained full control of Attica, none of the men huddled in their cells had been allowed to contact their family members. And so, the men at Attica tried their best to smuggle out word of their condition to their loved ones. As soon as some modicum of calm had returned to the prison, they began to circulate a tattered red spiral-bound notebook from cell to cell. In it, men wrote down the names and addresses of their loved ones and penned a brief message to them, in the hope that someone, somehow, would be able to get this notebook out of Attica and to any one of these addresses. One prisoner, identified only as James, wrote down the address of his sister, Ethel Walker, and next to it he scrawled, Sis, I am all right as of now, and I hope that things work out for the best. Charles Hawley wrote to his mother, Lenora Hawley, We are okay. A note to Gladys Harris said, Okay and in good health now. Call wife, etc. The book was filled with similar missives reassuring family members that the prisoners were alive and in decent health even though several of these men were in fact still injured and suffered beatings on a regular basis, they didn't want their families to worry more than they already had. But none of these notes reached their intended recipients. In one of the many abrupt, violent sweeps of the prison that took place in the days after the rebellion, state troopers confiscated the notebook. As the members of the Goldman panel observed the moment they got into Attica, Raids such as this meant that the prisoners routinely suffered the loss of personal property, which it has taken months and years to earn, collect, or create. The troopers and guards who had been placed in charge of the prison in the hours, days, and weeks after the retaking seemed to take particular satisfaction in ruining prisoner property. As one National Guardsman noted in disgust, COs and troopers had fun tossing prisoner belongings in the air and smashing them for sport, like you used to toss a ball in the air and hit it when you were a kid. A particularly egregious problem that continued at Attica, as noted by the Goldman panel, was that state officials were not acting quickly enough to replace the prisoner eyeglasses and dentures that had been smashed by correction officers and troopers. As the panel had pointed out, these were needed for eating and seeing, and therefore involve fundamental human rights. By Vincent Mancusi's own count, at least 78 prisoners were in need of new dentures in connection with the problem of dental prosthetics that were lost or destroyed during the riot. Mancusi ultimately was forced to call upon the University of Buffalo School of Dentistry to replace the many dental appliances and dentures that had been destroyed as a result of the September incident. He was also pressured by the Goldman panel to contact several optometrists to deal with the backlog of requests for glasses. Beyond damaging prisoner belongings, troopers and COs had also worked hard to destroy anything in the prisoner's cells that they worried might be used against them. 
Particular attention was paid to the legal papers that had painstakingly been gathered by the prisoners over the years. These papers, literally thousands of pages of writs of habeas corpus, appeals, and legal briefs that the men in Attica had written out by hand, often in triplicate, were confiscated, thrown haphazardly into boxes, and hauled off to a Quonset hut at the barracks of NYSP Troop A. At the end of September 1971, a portion of the more than 2,000 prisoners still at Attica were allowed to receive visits from family members. Unsurprisingly, what the more than 200 visitors who streamed through Attica prison's iron gates to spend an hour with inmate relatives heard on that first visit was deeply upsetting. Dorothy Trimmer, for example, emerged weeping over her son Wayne's account of having been savagely beaten about the genitals and elsewhere and forced to walk over broken glass. When pushed to account for such stories, Walter Dunbar maintained that correction officers in some instances firmly prodded inmates who were lagging as they were moving back to cells. To the best of my knowledge, no inmate received any physical force from correction officers other than prodding. He circulated this party line among the COs themselves in one of the prison's internal fact sheet from Attica publications. In the first days after the retaking of Attica, a great many of the prisoners were transferred to other prisons, but none of their families were told that such a move was taking place. According to memos written between officials at Attica and other penal institutions around the state, on September 17, 1971, a draft of 70 inmates is scheduled to leave Attica for transfer to Greenhaven, and similar transfers were made on Tuesday and Thursday for Clinton and Great Meadow. By Friday the 17th, 217 of Attica's inmates had been transferred out of that prison, and another 150 were scheduled to go to Greenhaven after that. Ultimately, by September, the last day of the transfers, 780 men had been moved out of Attica to other prisons around upstate New York. But even the men who had been transferred to other prisons were not exempt from continued harassment. Though none of the prisoners who had been moved were leaders of the rebellion, they were treated as radical agitators by those who ran their new facilities. Administrators at Great Meadow had to acknowledge that some men have bullet wounds, burns, abrasions. But when these men asked for medical care, these same prison officials insisted that the men were troublemakers and that their injuries were nothing too serious. The men who had been sent to Great Meadow were so upset that their injuries were being ignored and that they were being mistreated by guards that 82 of them launched a hunger strike within weeks of their arrival. Guard and trooper treatment of the Attica men who had been transferred to Clinton apparently was even worse than it had been for the men moved to Great Meadow. On October 29, the Legal Aid Society of Albany filed a $1.5 million class action suit against Rockefeller, Oswald, and numerous Clinton guards and administrators and sought a restraining order from Chief Judge James T. Foley of the Northern District Court against various abuses. According to the suit, the men at Clinton were frequently beaten, gratuitously tear-gassed and threatened, harassed and subjected to racial slurs as a matter of routine. By October, with lawsuits like this one, and with numerous citizens and even several congressmen calling for a closer look at what had gone so wrong at Attica more than six weeks after the retaking, 
it was clear that this controversy wasn't going to go away. Top officials in the Rockefeller administration recognized that it was time to get stories straight regarding exactly what had happened there. 29. Ducks in a Row Governor Rockefeller could see that the nation's attention on Attica was simply not dissipating, and he was determined not to appear the villain in this story. To his core, he believed that rebellions such as the one he recently had put down at Attica were ominous warnings that the American way of life itself was under attack. As he first articulated it to one of his speechwriters, today there is a relatively new political problem centering on the well-organized national effort of revolutionaries, within and without the prisoners, to wreck the penal system as one more step toward the ultimate destruction of this country. In another draft, he put his views even more pointedly. I declared last Monday that the tragedy at Attica was brought on by the highly organized revolutionary tactics of militants. Unfolding events since then have given me no cause whatsoever to alter that estimate. To the contrary. This was the view from the top as well. President Nixon made it clear that he too saw Attica as part of a broader threat of black revolutionary foment and so did members of his administration. Vice President Spiro Agnew penned a piece in the New York Times entitled The Root Causes of Attica, which not only suggested that this rebellion had been caused by extremists bent on violence, but that to imagine that the lives of felons were of equal dignity with legitimate aspirations of law-abiding citizens was absurd. Attorney General John Mitchell had long held the view that radical groups were but breeding grounds for violence-prone militants who seek only to destroy and who have no constructive objective. Their sole aim is to disrupt. Their leaders brag about being revolutionaries and anarchists. That the nation's most powerful politicians viewed Attica as part and parcel of a revolutionary plot to destabilize the nation as a whole would have profound consequences for how officials, both state and federal, handled the official investigation into what happened there. When Rockefeller appointed Robert Fisher, head of the Organized Crime Task Force, to lead the state inquiry into the rebellion as well as the retaking, he was without question hoping to shape the scope of the investigation. In his words, he wanted the investigation to determine the role that outside forces would appear to have played including the role of certain individuals in demanding prisoners to hold out for completely unattainable political demands. Basing the investigation in the Organized Crime Task Force Unit would ensure a great deal of funding for it, as well as experience dealing with criminal conspiracies in which he felt sure that Attica radicals had engaged. Still, Rockefeller was no idiot. He was aware that in the blink of an eye, Attica could become all about state wrongdoing. There were so many dead bodies following the retaking he had ordered, so much ugliness during the rehousing, and so many accusations of prisoners being executed as well as beaten. Therefore, it was vital that he and his staff have a chance to debrief those who'd been on the ground at Attica before any investigations, not only Fisher's, but any of the others that would surely be undertaken got underway. To make sure he was on top of all relevant information related to both the uprising and the retaking, 
the governor called a meeting for the morning of September 24 at his Pocantico Hills mansion. As his attorney, Michael Whiteman, recalled, the purpose was to get people to sharpen their recollections, especially because they were likely to be questioned. By 10 o'clock a.m. that day, a large group had assembled around a table in the pool house of the estate. Those present at the meeting included the governor, his personal secretary, Ann Whitman, Robert Douglas, attorney Michael Whiteman and his assistants, Harry Albright and Elliot Vesner, Howard Shapiro, Norman Hurd, General Buzz O'Hara, General John C. Baker, Press Secretary Ronald Majorana, speechwriter Hugh Morrow, Russell Oswald, Walter Dunbar, Anthony Simonetti, and Major John Monahan. According to Rockefeller, William Kirwan, the head of the New York State Police, who had been absent during the Attica uprising and retaking, was also there, as was Chief Inspector J.C. Miller of the NYSP. Detailed notes were taken, later read into a tape recorder, and then formally typed up. Three more of these debriefing meetings were held at the Rockefeller estate, described by Russell Oswald as three long weekend meetings, all of which were, according to Oswald, secret, and were intended, according to Robert Douglas, to nail down our own executive chamber chronology. In each of these meetings, one on October 25 from 9.30 a.m. to 2 o'clock p.m., another on October 30 from 9 o'clock a.m. to 2 p.m., and the final one for many hours on November 8, Rockefeller and his staff met not only with members of Fisher's office, but also with high-ranking officials from the New York State Police. The very last meeting, however, was perhaps the most comprehensive and most problematic, since it included both Major John Monahan and Captain Henry Williams of the NYSP, the two who had carried out the retaking that had killed 39 men and wounded 89 others, and therefore, whose men presumably face charges filed by Fisher's OCTF investigation into Attica, usually referred to as the Attica investigation. These potential indictees were now at the home of the governor of New York working with the head of the Attica investigation to get a formal narrative of what had happened at Attica secured. Also there to help do this were other members of the state police who had first-hand knowledge of exactly what had gone down in D-Yard on the 13th. These included one trooper who had taken a series of 35-millimeter slides from the roof of C-Block during the assault, and another from the office of the council to the governor, who were there to view a videotape, film and photographs, and ask questions related to the role of the state police at Attica. This meeting, like all the others, was attended by Harry Albright and Elliot Vesner, whose job it was to record what was discussed and write it up in a report. In the following decades, state officials would repeatedly deny the existence of the so-called Albright-Vesner Report, but it had served its intended purpose. Over the coming years, the retaking of Attica would come under extraordinary scrutiny, and the state officials who had spent so many hours in the fall of 1971 in that pool house corroborating their stories would be very glad they had. Part 6 Inquiries and Diversions Anthony Simonetti Tony Simonetti worked for Robert Fisher in the Organized Crime Task Force's Rochester office. 
He had come to the OCTF after first getting his B.A. at St. John's University and then his law degree from Fordham. He was admitted to the bar in 1964, was a former U.S. Marine, had been an FBI agent, and had even spent time in the South the previous decade looking into civil rights violations in that region. Simonetti had come to Robert Fisher's attention, though, as someone who worked for famed Manhattan D.A. Frank Hogan. Tony Simonetti had been a bit of a loner in Hogan's office, but he had nevertheless earned the respect of staff lawyers and investigators alike. He got the job done. Not only did he investigate his cases carefully and methodically, but he was also extremely sharp in the courtroom. Everyone could see that Simonetti relished getting witnesses on the stand, and then, with little fanfare and a penchant for simple but devastatingly direct questions, getting them to say exactly what he needed them to say. When Tony Simonetti got the call from Robert Fisher to come to the Attica Correctional Facility on September 13, 1971, he had no idea how much his life was about to change. It soon became clear that most of the responsibility for investigating what had happened at Attica was going to fall on his shoulders. Even Simonetti's investigative and prosecutorial skills would be challenged. He would have power as Attica Special Prosecutor Anthony G. Simonetti, but it would be hard to do his job without stepping on a lot of toes. The very man who was employing him, the governor of New York, had ordered the retaking of the prison that he was now supposed to look at carefully and critically. And, as awkwardly, New York State troopers who had retaken the prison were now collecting the evidence from Attica's yards that he would soon have to rely upon to make cases. 30. Digging More Deeply Rockefeller's office worked hard to control all investigations into what had happened at Attica. Choosing Robert Fisher to head up the official inquiry, the OCTF's Attica investigation, was but one way. Devoting several meetings to creating a unified state version of what had taken place was another. Still, by mid-fall of 1971, there were many individuals, groups, and organizations calling for very different and far more independent probes into why the retaking of Attica had been so deadly. Those investigations would be much harder to direct. Among those calling for an Attica inquiry were 13 African-American members of the House of Representatives, the New York Urban League, the National Legal Aid, the Defender Association, and the Buffalo Council of Churches. Additionally, a group of 300 students at Harvard Law School signed a petition to President Nixon asking for assignment of a federal commission to investigate the country's penal system more generally. The Prison Reform and Justice Committee of Rochester's Fight Organization also began calling for a statewide coalition to pressure for prison reform, and the committee's chairwoman was none other than Betty Barkley, L.D. Barkley's sister. So unhappy was Governor Rockefeller with these inquiries that he attempted to meet with legislative leaders in Albany in an effort to consolidate the many investigations of the rebellion that had been called for. This he was unable to do, and, worryingly, word had it that Attica's Observers Committee, the group that had been constituted during the uprising, had started meeting again in order to pressure legislators to order a totally independent investigation of the retaking. 
The Observers Committee had in fact reconvened on Sunday, September 26, at the behest of Arthur Eve, who felt strongly that they should collect and preserve all the documents, papers, tapes, and records they had accumulated over the course of the five days they'd spent at Attica. His idea was that they could deliver a full and accurate report regarding how the rebellion had progressed, including the committee's many efforts to warn the Rockefeller administration how disastrous a forcible retaking would be to any serious investigative body. They even did some fundraising, collecting money for both the families of the deceased inmates and hostages. In short, the reconstituted observers committee had pledged not to let down either the inmates or the hostages who died at Attica. By May of 1972, however, and as other more formal investigations had gotten underway, only a few of the observers seemed interested in meeting anymore. Some, such as Tom Wicker, had decided to keep Attica alive in a different way. In Wicker's case, through his columns in the New York Times, others had parted company with the committee because they now disagreed with its views. State Senator John Dunn, for instance, felt that the current committee consisted of men who took a one-sided pro-prisoner stance. Dunn did, however, join another committee, also created by Rockefeller, the Select Committee on Correctional Institutions and Programs. The governor tasked this group, known by all as the Jones Committee, since it was chaired by Hugh Jones, president of the State Bar Association and former chair of the Board of Social Welfare, with looking into prison conditions at the Attica Correctional Facility and in New York more generally. John Dunn was still the chairman of the state's Standing Committee on Crime and Correction, which, prior to the Attica uprising, had been calling attention to New York's prison overcrowding and other problems. He was eager to serve here, as were the dozen or so additional committee members, including state assemblymen, state senators, religious leaders, and officials from various state agencies. Governor Rockefeller's longtime friend Peter Pricer was appointed special consultant to coordinate the work of the select committee because, as Russell Oswald put it, he knows most of you. Beginning in early October, the Jones Committee visited numerous correctional institutions across the state where they explored the experiences, feelings, and judgments of inmates, administrative staff, correction officers, and other institutional personnel. When the committee visited Attica, its members were horrified by accounts they heard from at least 17 to 20 inmates about excessive and continuing brutality, and detailed descriptions of episodes of gauntlets and beatings. After what they had seen and heard at Attica and other prisons, the Jones Committee pulled no punches in the first report it submitted to the governor on January 24, 1972. As it noted, the committee is profoundly troubled by its impression of the present institutional system after making its initial assessment. There is substantial doubt as to whether the existing system offers any real hope of accomplishing the stated objectives. At the very least, it went on, the Department of Correctional Services needed to invest in far more training, more education, less profiteering, less warehousing, more attention to civil rights abuses, less censorship, greater mental health resources, adequate legal assistance supplied to inmates, brighter and cheerier prison facilities, better food, better medical and dental care. To bring their recommendations about penal reform to a broader audience, the Jones Committee went on to hold three public hearings the following month, one in Albany, 
the second in Buffalo, and the third in New York City. Such hearings and the scathing final report that the Jones Committee issued were not at all what the Rockefeller administration had expected. DOCS Commissioner Russell Oswald was incensed. It seems to me, he wrote Governor Rockefeller, that this continuing negative emphasis by the Jones Committee is a disservice to the effort of department and administration personnel who have worked so hard to bring about meaningful change. The commissioner had been equally unhappy with the findings of the Goldman panel. As he put it, a disturbing situation has developed with the advent of the Goldman and Jones Commission reports. Both have consistently failed to credit the efforts of the department in the very areas in which it has contributed so much. DOCS officials and the Rockefeller administration became more alarmed, though, once an even higher-ranking committee really began looking into Attica. This one, a federal investigative body chaired by Representative Claude Pepper, who also headed up the House Select Committee on Crime. Initially, at least, the governor's office felt pretty good about this particular inquiry, which had begun almost immediately after the retaking. On Friday, September 17, Pepper and five other congressmen, including Charles Rangel of New York, went to New York City to have an hour-and-a-half meeting with Rockefeller in order to listen to the governor's account of the uprising. Afterward, the governor flew them to Attica in his private jet so that they could see what conditions were like a few days after the retaking. After this initial trip, Representative Pepper told the press that they had had a most interesting and profitable visit. Committee member Representative Frank Brasco elaborated a bit further, stating to reporters that, in his view, Commissioner Oswald has gone as far as he could in negotiations. The next day, however, the Pepper Commission members spoke to some of the prisoners and COs and had decided that they would stay at the prison for as long as necessary, perhaps the whole weekend, to get a full sense of conditions there. According to the New York Times, the commission was not at all pleased to hear prisoners tell of suffering much abuse after the retaking and having had to run a gauntlet of officers wielding batons. The Pepper Commission went on to examine other prisons in the country that had also experienced uprisings, institutions that Rockefeller felt were also hotbeds of destructive revolutionary activism, which slightly buoyed the governor's faith in its mission. But once the commission hearings got underway, he realized that his office was going to get an earful that it didn't particularly want to hear. Despite Claude Pepper's opening the hearings by stating that the committee was primarily interested in a national inquiry into the American system for treating and rehabilitating criminal offenders so that the nation could better deal with the problem of crime, conditions at Attica were clearly going to dominate the agenda, taking up a full two and a half days of the five days of hearings. It appeared that the Pepper Commission intended to probe conditions at Attica fully, even arranging for Richard X. Clark, as well as other prisoners they had spoken to at Attica, to come in to offer graphic testimony about severe and continuing abuse prisoners experienced at the hands of troopers and correction officers. But the prisoners ultimately were let down. Russell Oswald and Walter Dunbar refused to let Clark come, arguing that his visit would pose a security risk. And, instead of prisoners testifying, the commission instead heard a great deal from Superintendent Mancusi, as well as many of Attica's guards, 
all of whom denied that any beatings or officially sanctioned brutality occurred at the prison. These witnesses did get some pushback from committee members. Representative Charles Rangel, for example, refused to accept the viewpoint that prisoners were nothing more than militant troublemakers determined to destroy America. Rangel noted with disgust that this trope had gotten so out of hand that there is talk right now from the governor's office right on down that prisoners now will be labeled as to whether or not they are rebellious, they're revolutionists, or they're moderate, and they will be systematically segregated or removed from the general population. Some of Rockefeller's own political friends, including John Dunn, also disagreed with his view of the Attica rebels. Dunn had steadfastly maintained that there was no basis for Warden Mancusi's belief in a conspiracy influenced by Marxists, Maoists, and far-leftists, enhanced by an atmosphere of permissiveness in the outside world. One of the governor's closest advisors, attorney Michael Whiteman, indicated as well that he and Rockefeller had a stark difference of opinion about this. Commissioner Oswald, too, rejected the idea that Attica's uprising had been a leftist plot. He testified before the Pepper Commission that he saw no evidence that a communist or a revolutionary conspiracy lay behind the Attica prison riot, and therefore, like Wrangell, Oswald thought it far more productive to focus on root causes, such as an obsolete prison system long starved by the state government for funds and trained personnel. Still, the first set of Pepper Commission hearings did little to further prisoner rights in America. Indeed, the whole affair seemed relatively pointless to Congressman Badillo, who stepped in to testify at the last minute when Richard Clark was prevented from doing so. Badillo felt that no investigation of the rebellion at Attica Prison, including the Pepper Inquiry, got at the heart of the issues at hand in New York's prisons. This one had even managed to obfuscate the fact that inmates' demands agreed to by state have not been implemented. Eventually, the Pepper Commission did hear testimony from a few of Attica's prisoners. In a later set of hearings, held at the U.S. Customs House in February 1972, Richard Clark and Frank Lott, along with two white prisoners, took to the stand to report on what had led to the uprising at Attica, as well as how they had fared since. All four expressed their frustration that, Despite having finally spoken to the men from the commission during their visit to the prison back in September, little had changed for them. Clark was particularly dismayed by the commission's ineffectiveness. As he put it, we had people come up and talk and talk about reform and rehabilitation, and that's all it is, is talk. We've still got brothers being beaten up in here. While both the Jones Committee and the Pepper Commission expressed criticism of Rockefeller for not going to Attica, most prisoners, civil rights groups, and what remained of the Observers Committee felt that all the committees appointed by the state to investigate the events of Attica would produce a whitewash. There was one investigative body that state officials had almost no influence over. In the wake of the retaking, the public had persistently and loudly demanded a genuinely independent inquiry, and the governor was eventually pressured to create a fully independent citizens' committee to conduct the investigation. On September 21, he announced that Chief Judge Stanley Fald would be in charge of appointing this committee, which would investigate the facts leading up to, during, and following the riot at Attica, and then file a full, factual, and impartial report 
just as soon as possible. Chairing the citizen inquiry was Robert McKay, dean of New York University School of Law. The McKay Commission, which first met in November 1971, was comprised of judges and lawyers, members of the clergy, and leaders of various political and social justice organizations who were all formally empowered by the state Supreme Court. The commission's general counsel was Arthur L. Lyman, an experienced lawyer who had worked as both a defense counsel and a prosecutor, and was currently a partner in the very prestigious New York firm of Paul, Weiss, Rifkind, Wharton, and Garrison. This commission was one impressive body, to be sure, but as Lyman himself put it, black and white alike, they were all, save one, totally ignorant of prisons. The exception was commission member Amos Hennix, who had served several sentences as a young man and had become a leader in the movement for the rehabilitation of addicts. The commission was sent to work with a budget of $250,000, and Lyman was tasked with putting together a full-time staff, which eventually contained 36 full-time attorneys, investigators, researchers, and clerical personnel. They were assisted by more than 60 part-time interviewers, student volunteers, and consultants in the fields of communications, penology, sociology, hospital and health services, psychiatry, pathology, and ballistics. Despite its official independence, however, members of the McKay Commission felt from the beginning that they had to fight to keep the governor's office from trying to control or undermine their inquiry. The commission's goal was not to make general recommendations on penal reform. That had been the goal of both the Jones and Pepper commissions. The McKay Commission was to focus solely on Attica, going over the rebellion and the retaking with a magnifying glass. From the moment he accepted his appointment as counsel for the commission, Arthur Lyman constantly had to fend off Robert Fisher, who wanted to know everything the McKay Commission was learning and wanted access to all its files for the purposes of the state's inquiry into criminal acts committed at Attica during the rebellion and retaking. As Rockefeller attorney Michael Whiteman recalled, after its formation, Fisher complained and said, you know, I don't understand how these things are going to function together. Fisher tried to get Rockefeller to issue an executive order under Section 6 of the executive law indicating that investigations into corruption had ready access to any information that might be useful. Since the governor had placed Fisher's inquiry under the Organized Crime Task Force, Fisher reasoned that he should have unlimited access to the McKay findings. McKay and the rest of his commission, however, argued that this would be totally unacceptable and made this crystal clear to Rockefeller lawyer Michael Whiteman. When Whiteman was unable to get Fisher to back down from his efforts to get at the commission files, McKay called Rockefeller to inform him that the commission would resign if he planned on doing what Fisher wanted. In addition to threatening to disband the entire operation, McKay insisted that the governor stand by some ironclad principles so that commission members could do their work unhampered and unintimidated. These included the commission's right to hold public hearings, its right to the full cooperation of all state officials, and a guarantee that its files and witnesses would remain off-limits to any other state office or body. If he would not agree to these conditions, Dean McKay informed Rockefeller, members of the commission would give serious consideration to immediate resignation at the November 8th meeting. To the dismay of Fisher, 
and to the great consternation of prison officials, the governor gave in to McKay. Russell Oswald was particularly worried by what this would mean for his people. He wrote to Attica Superintendent Vincent Mancusi, Frankly, I can see nothing but trouble ahead for you, Walter Dunbar, and me for the next several months with the manner in which this commission is moving. You are undoubtedly aware of the fact that they have recruited law students from New York University, Columbia University Law School, and Yale Law School to assist in their study. Need more be said? Once the McKay Commission entered Attica in November of 1971, just after the Goldman panel left, Mancusi had his hands full. The commission spent the next seven months trying to interview anyone who had any knowledge of the causes of the uprising, the day-by-day course of the uprising, the retaking by the state, and the immediate aftermath of the retaking. The commission members faced great difficulty in collecting this information. The COs they encountered were often hostile, doing their best to instill a serious fear of the prisoners and the interviewers, in particular the young ones. Recalled Arthur Lyman, The initial reaction of many guards to our visit was that even the male members of the commission would be raped, and when a woman arrived to conduct interviews, they unnerved her by constantly peering in the window to make sure that she was okay. Another serious barrier to the McKay investigators was that many prisoners were deeply suspicious of them, particularly because they were an overwhelmingly white group. Aware of this potential reaction, Robert McKay and Arthur Lyman had tried to include black interviewers in the group. Lyman had specifically met with the members of the Black Law Students Association at Yale, but he ultimately recruited only four part-time students. Ironically, these few black interviewers among so many whites became objects of suspicion for the prisoners. As a prisoner writing on behalf of the group of 80 men who were locked in Attica's HBZ segregation unit put it, when the McKay Commission saw that the greater majority of us, who are black, were reluctant to talk to them, white, they went and got five or six blacks, hoping we would relate to them. As a result, we strongly feel that the blacks appointed to this commission compromised their principles and sold their blackness to obtain information from us. If the commission were really interested in hearing about events leading up to the rebellion and its bloody climax, he went on, from the beginning, it should have been made up of our peers, of people who know how we live, who come from our communities, who are poor like us, who can relate to our struggle for survival in this society. These same prisoners had been willing to talk to congressmen as well as members of both the Goldman Panel and the Jones Committee, yet it had gotten them no improvements. They were understandably jaded. The real issue driving prisoners' suspicion of the McKay Commission interviewers, however, was that for the past two months, they had endured some particularly aggressive interrogations by Fisher's investigators, both state police and state investigators, who had been grilling them and trying to get them to inform on their cellmates. The prisoners knew that Fisher was trying to find evidence of criminal wrongdoing during the rebellion and retaking, and it certainly appeared to the prisoners that his team was only looking at them. When the McKay investigators came in, it was hard for the prisoners to know how the McKay investigation might relate to the Fisher investigation, or which investigators belonged to which group. Even if the former was independent of the latter, prisoners feared that something they might say to investigators from McKay's office 
could end up twisted by Fisher's men to build cases against them. As a man in HBZ explained, it was the fear of what the state might do with McKay information that terrified prisoners who had participated in the rebellion and kept them from cooperating. Any and all information the commission accumulates can be subpoenaed by the grand jury and used as evidence against us. Roger Champin was particularly concerned about the McKay investigators. As he put it, they worried me to death. Not only did they want him to make statements about the rebellion, but they wanted him to testify about his experiences in future public hearings. He, Arthur Lyman, was at my cell. I thought the man would move in there with me. I'm serious. He came up there one night just before the hearing and said, Are you sure you won't reconsider? And I said, Listen, I respect you, but I don't think you give me the same respect. I told you repeatedly I am not speaking to you or any member of the McKay Commission because I am going to be indicted and the testimony I give you can be used in the trial. I'm not going to give it to you. And he stood there trying to convince me, so much so that I had to be rude and ignore him. Richard X. Clark also felt compelled to speak on behalf of the 80 prisoners being held in solitary. He issued an official statement to the McKay Commission in order to explain why so many didn't want to testify at any hearing. The Commission had spoken to thousands of inmates, he said, but had done nothing favorable for them. More to the point, he continued, the Commission is solidly connected with the privileged class, which makes it a whitewash group. Some prisoner rights advocates were so suspicious of the McKay Commission's true intentions that a group calling itself the Ad Hoc Citizens Committee to Defend the Constitutional Rights of Prisoners in New York State filed a case in U.S. District Court on December 22, 1971, on the prisoner's behalf so that the Commission would not be able to go forward with its investigation. Although the McKay Commission, in fact, worked very hard to protect prisoners' rights and would be deeply critical of the state's retaking of the prison, its members sometimes behaved in ways that directly undermined their credibility with the prisoners. One day, when Arthur Lyman was on his way to speak with Richard Clark in his cell, it suddenly occurred to him that the fact that he was walking through the prison corridors, accompanied by Vincent Mancusi, might not be construed very favorably by the men, and asked the warden to hide under a chair in the barbershop. Of course, for any prisoner who saw Lyman's awkward effort to appear independent, it looked like he was trying to cover up a close relationship with the prison administration. From the prisoner's perspective, anyone who might be trusted by Mancusi couldn't be trusted, since they blamed his callousness for the reason there was a rebellion in the first place. Lyman thought that prisoners were overreacting when it came to McKay Commission members talking with prison administrators. As he later put it, it seemed so ludicrous that the warden of the prison institution should have to screen himself under a stool. Despite these barriers to trust, in one year, the McKay Commission was able to collect information from more than 3,200 witnesses, including 1,600 present and former inmates of Attica, 400 correction officers, 270 state police personnel, 200 National Guardsmen, 100 sheriffs and sheriff's deputies, prison administrators at Attica and in Albany, doctors and other medical personnel who were called to the scene, residents of the town of Attica, and the wives of correction officers and inmates. The commission also interviewed or took testimony from Governor Rockefeller, 
and five members of his executive staff. What is more, it collected an extraordinary number of documents, over 2,000, from the Department of Correctional Services, the New York State Police, the New York National Guard, and other sources. What they found made it abundantly clear not only that the men locked in Attica had much to protest in the first place, but that they had also experienced terrible abuse in the wake of the uprising. This was the very reason that Robert McKay insisted on holding a series of public hearings on the Commission's findings. He wanted the citizens of New York to hear all of this for themselves. It was likely to be the same reason that Robert Fisher was determined to prevent such hearings from taking place. Just before the hearings were to commence on April 12, 1972, Fisher sought an 11th-hour injunction against them. Dean McKay immediately fired off a letter to Rockefeller, reminding him of previous correspondence, in which the governor had already agreed that the commission would be empowered to hold public hearings and issue our report without any restrictions and without the approval of any court. Once again, McKay won his battle to keep the commission on track. During the month of April, the commission went to the studios of local public television stations in Rochester and New York City, and from there broadcast the hearings live. Rockefeller, though, asked to testify privately in his Manhattan office, which he did for almost three hours. Having been carefully prepped by a special counsel who'd been brought on exclusively to get him ready for his testimony, the governor explained that he personally had little involvement with any decisions that had been made at Attica because of his belief in delegating authority to subordinates in whom he had faith. Rockefeller repeatedly dodged any personal responsibility for the debacle, but it was nevertheless clear to the McKay Commission and to the public that his office had had complete agency over the event. More important, he might have prevented the disaster there. Numerous witnesses told the McKay Commission that had Rockefeller merely come to the prison or, better yet, heeded the Observers Committee's warnings about the bloodbath that was sure to result from an armed retaking, the outcome of this prison rebellion might have been very different. And the McKay hearings drove home to anyone listening that the outcome, the retaking of Attica, had been almost incomprehensibly barbaric. Powerful testimony by National Guardsman physician John W. Cutmore made the room fall silent. Speaking quietly, Cutmore summed up everything he had witnessed on September 13. I think Attica brings to mind several things. The first is the basic inhumanity of man to man. The veneer of civilization as we sit here today in a well-lit, reasonably well-appointed room with suits and ties on objectively performing an autopsy on this day, yet cannot get at the absolute horror of the situation to people, be they black, yellow, orange, spotted, whatever. Whatever uniform they wore, that day tore from them the shreds of their humanity. The veneer was penetrated. After seeing that day, I went home and sat down and spoke with my wife, and I said for the first time, being a somewhat dedicated amateur army type, I could understand what may have happened at My Lai. This was not at all the story that state officials in New York had hoped the world would hear. More alarmingly for the state, Robert McKay announced on August 30, 1972, that his committee would be publishing a lengthy report on all of its findings, a report that could be purchased by the public 
on the one-year anniversary of the retaking of Attica. At 11 o'clock a.m. that day, at the New York University Law Center, McKay took questions from the media and informed the press that there also would be a one-hour television special to be broadcast on public television to discuss the main points of the report. As it turned out, there was so much public interest in this story that New York City's public television station, Channel 13, decided to devote 90 minutes to the McKay Commission findings, followed by a 30-minute panel discussion chaired by newscaster Bill Moyers. Panelists included William Vanden Heuvel, then chairman of the New York City Board of Correction, Leo Zeffaretti, president of the Correction Officers Benevolent Association, Tom Wicker, Arthur Lyman, and two Attica prisoner survivors. The report, published by Bantam Books in mass market paperback form as Attica, the official report of the New York State Special Commission on Attica, flew off the shelves. Widely available in bookstores and on newsstands, it was so riveting a read that the following year it was a finalist for the National Book Award. The McKay Commission's narrative of events unflinchingly and graphically exposed the mistreatment of prisoners that had led to the rebellion and made it equally clear that its bloody end was both avoidable and unconscionable. In their conclusion, the authors of the report bluntly summed it up. The decision to retake the prison was not a quixotic effort to rescue the hostages in the midst of 1,200 inmates. It was a decisive reassertion of the state of its sovereignty and power. Even New York political operatives who were in Rockefeller's camp, such as Senator Jacob Javits, were unsettled by what they learned from the McKay Commission report. Javits publicly stated, There will be more Atticas until federal and state governments and the American people accept their responsibility to establish minimum standards of decency and respect for human rights in our prisons. We cannot afford to wait for new explosions. One of his aides described the report more bluntly still as an incredibly shocking story of maladministration, bad judgment, and total disregard for human life. Anthony Simonetti, now fully in charge of Fisher's inquiry, reacted to the release of the report by redoubling his efforts to access everything the McKay Commission had collected over the course of its investigation. He wanted to have as much information as possible about the Attica uprising and aftermath at his fingertips. He suspected the McKay book would reveal a great deal he needed to see. He had his investigators go through the book line by line, listing every key fact about each event that had taken place during the rebellion or the retaking, alongside what his investigation did or did not know about that same event. On the basis of this analysis, Simonetti was certain that the McKay Commission had evidence that his men needed if they were going to bring indictments against those who had committed crimes during the course of Attica's rebellion and retaking. Arthur Lyman held firm to the Commission's position that if it was compelled to release its documents, the governor would have violated his commitment to the Commission that its records of interviews, confidential statements of inmates, guards, and others, would not be subject to the subpoena of the state attorney general for criminal purposes. Lyman publicly stated that he would go to jail first, rather than hand them over. Drawing this line in the sand was not enough to make the issue of state access to the McKay files go away, particularly since, according to one political aide, 
the governor's people were apparently saying that no such commitment as such was made. Fisher refused to back down from his belief that he had a right to these files. He particularly wanted any information that would allow him to prosecute whoever had killed Correction Officer William Quinn. In a bold move, New York State Attorney General Louis Lefkowitz, who when Fisher moved on in 1973, would be the main person overseeing Anthony Simonetti's ongoing criminal investigation, decided to subpoena top McKay officials to come before a grand jury, testify to what they had learned in the course of their investigation, and then turn over all of their investigative files. As far as McKay was concerned, however, the files remained protected. As he reminded everyone, in carrying out our task, we made statements to inmates, state police, and correction officers that their confidentiality would be respected. If the records are given over to the grand jury, the credibility of the state and the commission would be compromised, and it would be another justified instance where the inmates could not trust the establishment. Eventually, Judge Lee P. Galliardi settled the matter in a hearing on October 17, 1972, ruling that the McKay files would remain protected. Rockefeller had been pressured not to play a public role in the dispute, likely making it easier for the judge to rule in favor of the McKay Commission. As Rockefeller attorney Michael Whiteman later recalled, the men charged with running the Attica investigation were, in the end, quite embittered, A, that we wouldn't support them in their demands to get the McKay records, and B, that they lost. Not getting to see the McKay files, however, did not prevent Simonetti's office from moving forward in its investigation. 31. Foxes in the Hen House Simonetti's investigation of criminal wrongdoing at Attica was not at all disadvantaged by its inability to see the McKay Commission's files. The reality was that Simonetti's office had unfettered access to every person involved in the rebellion as well as the retaking, better access than the McKay investigators had had, and was asking questions of prisoners well before anyone from the McKay Commission ever set foot in Attica. Before the gas had even cleared over Attica, Anthony Simonetti had complete access to the prison yard. He was also present when the prison was sealed so that investigators could gather evidence such as ballistics information, blood tests, weapons, fingerprints, and preparation of diagrams. Incredibly, the investigators that Simonetti was relying upon to collect that evidence were from the New York State Police's Bureau of Criminal Investigation, BCI. Troop A's Captain Henry Williams, who had been instrumental in overseeing the retaking, was the main BCI man now collecting evidence, and at least one other BCI investigator, Vincent Tobia, had used his weapon in the retaking. Indeed, during the first critical weeks of the Attica investigation, the weeks in which evidence was secured and troopers' statements about the shots they had fired were taken, the main investigators of crimes at Attica were those who may well have committed them. It was not odd or unusual for an investigation being run out of New York's Organized Crime Task Force to use the State Police's Bureau of Criminal Investigation Unit. In fact, it was standard practice. However, in the earliest days of the Attica investigation, 
Even Robert Fisher realized relying on them in this case was going to raise eyebrows. To try to ward off criticism, Fisher told Rockefeller attorney Michael Whiteman up front that BCI investigators would have to report directly to him, and not, as they normally would, to their state police superiors. In fact, back in September 1971, Fisher said that he would not take the job unless he was given full control of the state police in the conduct of the investigation. Whiteman agreed and made sure to inform State Police Lieutenant Colonel George Infante and State Police Superintendent William Kerwin that their men would report directly to Fisher. With so much on the line, however, BCI investigators resisted taking any direction from Fisher or Simonetti, and their superiors had little interest in doing so either. Dozens of men had died at Attica, and, as Infante and Kerwin knew, Many of their own men could face criminal charges if they didn't control this investigation. Within 24 hours of arriving at Attica, Tony Simonetti could see that the state police had closed ranks. As he opined, independent investigators were required if he had any hope of examining what troopers might have done wrong. Barring such independent investigators, for which there was no funding allotted, Fisher and Simonetti held a pointed meeting with Lieutenant Colonel Infante, Major John Monahan, Captain Henry Williams, and other state police personnel to set everyone straight about who was in charge of this investigation. However, this had little effect on the men on the ground. Fisher and Simonetti, and later Lefkowitz and Simonetti when Fisher left for the bench, never would be able to control the BCI investigators let alone get them to follow proper procedures. Captain Williams went to great lengths to thwart every state effort to ask thorny questions about the actions of his men. And he went even further than that. In the immediate aftermath of the retaking, Williams took it upon himself to make sure as much evidence as possible was collected that might indicate that a prisoner committed a crime. For example, collecting every baseball bat in D-Yard since these could have been used by prisoners as weapons, while also making sure that nothing related to the shooting, shell casings, the weapons themselves, was collected. Even though this was a crime scene, no BCI man made chalk outlines to indicate where bodies had fallen, or made any calculations regarding bullet trajectories vis-a-vis -vis those bodies. Instead, Captain Williams ordered a crew of his men to start a cleanup operation of Attica's yards, its storage rooms, and its tunnels, as well as other buildings. By 5 o'clock p.m. on the day of the retaking, Williams' troopers had completed their assignment. Since there was little interest in the governor's camp in seeing state troopers indicted, no one considered removing the BCI, or even just Williams, from the state investigation. Others remarked upon their continued presence at Attica, however. Members of the Goldman panel wrote directly to Robert Fisher on October 1, 1971, to express their strong feelings that the state police could not conduct an objective and impartial investigation of the allegations against state police and correction officers of post-riot brutality and physical mistreatment of inmates. Clarence Jones and Austin McCormick of the Goldman panel went further regarding Captain Williams' involvement. Jones called it an insult to the public's intelligence. It's ridiculous. McCormick agreed. If I were Williams, he said, I think I'd disqualify myself. 
the Goldman panel asked Fisher to remove him from the assignment as chief of investigators. The president of the state NAACP, Donald Lee, had also called for Williams' removal. Prisoner lawyer Herman Schwartz not only went public with his objections to the Fisher investigation, but he made clear that, legally, the way Williams was running it was a violation of the inmates' constitutional rights to equal protection under the law. A few weeks into the start of the investigation, Fisher's own man, Tony Simonetti, also grew increasingly vocal that it was inappropriate for a state police official who had been directly involved in the retaking events to play any role whatsoever in their investigation. Williams simply wasn't cooperating with him. When Simonetti asked Williams to turn over all reels of tape that the state police had recorded, he made available two reels of 8mm film, but refused to turn over the originals. Doing so, Williams said, was unnecessary because they had been reproduced in their entirety on the two reels furnished. It became clear that none of the materials the BCI needed would be easy to get if it had anything to do with troopers, guns, or shooting. NYSP recalcitrance with Simonetti's office was only a real problem, however, if the state was going to start digging into crimes committed by troopers in Attica. And, at least initially, Fisher and Simonetti had little interest in doing this. When it came time to get the BCI to hand over information it had collected that might be used against prisoners, Simonetti's office had a great deal of cooperation. Officially, Simonetti's office was tasked with four main areas of investigation. Crimes related to the rebellion itself, including the taking of the hostages, deaths that occurred in the prison prior to the retaking, deaths and injuries that resulted from the retaking, and abuses that took place as the prisoners were rehoused. Yet for reasons that many outsiders couldn't quite grasp, since the most death and injury took place during the retaking and after, Fisher asked Simonetti to train his attention first on the question of conspiracy to cause riot. And then, with equal zeal, his team's resources were to be devoted to investigating all homicides that had occurred prior to the assault. In other words, those that could not have been committed by troopers or COs. Indeed, there were prisoner killings prior to the state's retaking for Simonetti's office to investigate. CO William Quinn had died from the beating he suffered in the initial rioting, and three prisoners were murdered at some point during the uprising. From the very first day of the uprising, men like Roger Champin had done an extraordinary job of minimizing violence, and making D.E.R. a safe place for all. He and the security team had taken great pains to prevent the sexual coercion, revenge attacks, and drug use that might otherwise have wreaked havoc with almost 1,300 men in a space half the size of a football field. But the longer the rebellion continued, and the more hardened the state's position became, the more suspicion and fear began to take their toll. For prisoners Kenneth Hess and Barry Schwartz, who were accused of treason and taken to a cell in D-Block after speaking with reporter Stuart Dan, the rising paranoia had proved deadly. On Saturday night, a prisoner by the name of Sam Liggetts, known by his friends as Bug-Eyed Zam, had been summoned to D-Block, along with another prisoner named John Flowers, to tend to some lacerations suffered by detainee Barry Schwartz. When they arrived, Schwartz showed them some serious gashes on his arms and feet 
and told them that his captors had been throwing broken glass on him. When Liggett's held a flashlight so that Flowers could see what he was doing, Flowers stitched him up. Sometime later that night, well after Flowers and Liggett's had left, a group of elderly and infirm prisoners who had chosen to bunk in D-Block since the riot began happened to walk by cell three where Bernard Schwartz was being held. These men, shuffling slowly with their arthritis, were literally stopped in their tracks by the gore inside. According to one of them, I saw a white inmate lying or lied with another inmate on top, half on top of the other man, both covered with blood. The man on the bottom didn't seem to be breathing. The man on the top was breathing like he was gasping for breath. Both men were laying face up, head toward cell doors. Sometime after Liggett's and Flowers had left the block, Schwartz had again been attacked and was now dead. And someone had moved him into the same cell with Hess, who had also been stabbed repeatedly. Although the terrible events unfolding behind the scenes in D-Block escaped the notice of everyone outside in D-Yard, on Sunday morning, one of the state troopers who had been watching D-Block noticed that something unusual was happening on one of the tiers. A prisoner was trying to get his attention from an exterior window in D-Block. This trooper notified several of his men, including two sergeants, who, in turn, walked closer to the D-Block wall. Upon closer inspection, he could see that a prisoner had managed to wedge himself into the small opening between the window and the bars that covered it. He was wearing a bloody t-shirt and what appeared to be a bloody towel or rag around his throat. Although the prisoner was having great difficulty breathing and his voice came out in a rasp, a correction officer also standing there began firing questions at the distressed man. No one there could make out the man's name, something like Glass, they thought. They could clearly see, though, that he was asking for their help. Unsure what to do, a trooper told the prisoner to lie down and that they would try to get some assistance. This trooper then dutifully reached a sergeant who tried to request a vehicle for the purpose of pulling out the window board, and he was then told to stand by, but nothing ever happened. The bleeding prisoner was Kenneth Hess. About 30 minutes later, he reappeared at the window and, to the surprise of those troopers still watching, he began climbing up in slow motion, again wedging himself between the window glass and the outside bars, but now trying to reach the window on the floor above. According to trooper reports, he appeared to be in extreme difficulty, and on reaching the second floor, he rested on the window and again entered into a conversation with them. It began to dawn on the troopers that this man might have been stabbed, so they began questioning him about who had attacked him. He merely shook his head negatively. They watched him leave the window after a few minutes, and he was never seen again. Although this incident was quickly reported to state officials, the troopers and COs were, as one put it, extremely suspicious that he might be walking into a trap and that the man in the window was merely used as bait to get them close to the building. It was not a trap. Three men, Kenneth Hess, his friend Barry Schwartz, and Mickey Privetera, who had been acting crazily in the yard and subsequently were sent to the third tier of D-Block for the protection of the men assembled outside, were being held against their will and were in real trouble. By the time the state retook Attica, all three were dead. 
It was ironic for the state investigation to focus on these killings with such zeal, when the state had seemed to care little about them as they were happening. Robert Fisher explained that Simonetti's investigation should be oriented first and primarily toward inmate crimes, because the initial silence of inmates in this regard has to be broken through early or not at all. As important, he wrote to Attorney General Louis Lefkowitz, the deaths that had happened at the hands of prisoners were simply more obviously homicides. Because BCI investigators were the ones conducting the legwork of the investigation, there was plenty of evidence being found against prisoners. But just as Simonetti's office knew that the NYSP wasn't being above board turning over evidence it had collected against troopers, it was well aware that the evidence the BCI was collecting on prisoners was highly problematic. For one thing, its interrogations were being conducted without regard to prisoners' legal or civil rights. Even though BCI investigators were repeatedly warned, even by Fisher himself, to make sure prisoners' rights were protected during questioning, they ignored him. The violations of rights were so egregious that as early as September 17, Fisher insisted that Captain Hank Williams order his own investigators to stop all prisoner interviews. He did not. Even Rockefeller later admitted that the BCI had not been following what appeared to have been a direction by Fisher that Miranda warnings should have been given to inmates before they were interrogated. Rockefeller's lawyer Michael Whiteman also acknowledged that the state police were proceeding contrary to the directions that had been given, that they were conducting interviews with people or doing things they hadn't gotten specific clearance on from Fisher. Even if Fisher had been able to rein in the BCI investigators, there was still the problem of how Mancusi's COs were treating the prisoners that had been enlisted to help build criminal cases against their fellow prisoners. At least officially, Fisher tried to bring Mancusi in line as well, writing, As you are aware, it is my function to gather evidence in regard to any criminal violations relating to the Attica riots and assure that these violations are prosecuted according to law. Any attempt by any officer to penalize inmates in any other manner can only interfere with the proper prosecution of those inmates who may have violated the penal code. Mancusi obligingly wrote a memo to his staff that read in part, As I have emphasized in the past, despite recent events at this facility, any officer who undertakes any abuse of inmates not only does himself a disservice, but may interfere with proper prosecution of those criminally responsible. As for actually monitoring his own CO's behavior, however, he passed that buck to Deputy Superintendent Leon Vincent, and the violations continued. Beyond the issuing of internal memos, neither Fisher, Simonetti, nor eventually Lefkowitz did much to prevent such abuses. The fact was, they relied heavily upon the intelligence that such violations netted them, with few attorneys there to protect the prisoners' right to remain silent, and with even fewer monitors in the prison to make sure that they weren't being threatened, intimidated, and physically hurt, throughout 1971 and into 1972, the Attica investigation proceeded most aggressively. 32. Stick and Carrot Simonetti paid little attention to the cases of BCI interrogation-related abuse that prisoners repeatedly brought to his attention. 
The fact was that the endless months of interrogating prisoners were netting his office the very prisoner witness accounts it would need if it wanted to move to begin indicting prisoners. Clearly what the higher-ups wanted. From the earliest days of the investigation, this disinterest in prisoner claims of abuse was mirrored by his boss, Robert Fisher. Back in October of 1971, Fisher had actually asked Governor Rockefeller to contact U.S. Attorney General John Mitchell about the possibility of the Justice Department beginning its own separate investigation to see if prisoners' claims of abuse and illegal acts of law enforcement had any merit. The Justice Department agreed to take a look. But when the U.S. Justice Department informed Fisher that it had a witness to a terrible assault on an inmate with a Phillips-head screwdriver, Fisher advised that he had no information regarding the incident described by the National Guardsman and stated firmly that there has been no medical information brought out which would substantiate any prisoner being wounded in the rear end and by being stabbed with a screwdriver. Whether they liked to admit it or not, everyone at the Attica investigation was aware that abuse and intimidation were key to persuading Attica prisoners to agree to testify against their own. Consider one witness whom Simonetti's office looked forward to calling in its grand jury case regarding the killing of Barry Schwartz. Prisoner Edward Kowalczyk. On the day of the retaking, Kowalczyk had been shot seven times and then was beaten savagely by correction officers, so badly that a National Guardsman intervened on his behalf and got him taken to Meyer Memorial Hospital. But only a day later, while still heavily sedated, and clearly in critical condition, he had to deal with BCI investigators. They pointed guns at him, threatened to pull tubes out of him, and said they would poison him. Finally, sick with fear, he agreed to cooperate. He would say that he saw who killed Barry Schwartz. Simonetti's office also had to know that a combination of abuse and bribery was used to convince Charles Flip Crowley to go before the grand jury in another case they hoped to make against one of his fellow prisoners at Attica. On September 17, 1971, Crowley recounted, I gave an interview under an atmosphere of the most intense terror that I have ever seen. I gave an interview, indeed, to save my life. I felt and knew within myself that had I not spoken to the two officers of the law at the hospital, that I would not have been allowed to live. The two officers who came into Crowley's hospital room told him they knew he'd been having a hard time and were willing to transfer him out of Attica to a safe location where he would not be harassed by correction officers or state troopers. In return, though, they had certain pertinent facts that they wanted him to confirm for them. When he was unable to do so to their satisfaction, according to Crowley, the officers proceeded to beat me, and they beat me for at least a half an hour. During the course of the beating, I was made to crawl around on the floor and shout white power and kiss their feet. This went on for two days. To Crowley's shock, a clergyman had seen the whole thing. But when he begged this man for help, according to Crowley, the clergyman just bowed his head and walked out and left me there. Everyone in Simonetti's office presumably would have preferred to get prisoner testimony without such egregious acts of force and intimidation. And indeed, to that end, they had made noises from day one about getting Williams' BCI investigators out of Attica, and, instead, 
hiring their own men to interview prisoners. Ideally, Fisher hoped, Simonetti would have a stable of NYC detectives who were retired or who could take retirement to help him conduct the Attica investigation. By November 20, 1971, Fisher had been able to hire nine homicide detectives from the New York City Police Department. But Simonetti still had to rely heavily on the BCI investigators if he had any hope of getting evidence before a grand jury in a timely manner. As Robert Fisher had bluntly explained, herein lies the problem. Release of the state police personnel will slow down the completion of the investigation considerably unless the independent investigative staff can be enlarged somewhat. The net result is that instead of being able to report in the early fall, the grand jury will not be able to present a complete report until much later. As a few months turned into almost one and a half years, prisoners continued to endure serious investigative improprieties. According to one later account of this period in the Attica investigation, the typical prisoner interviews began with investigators trying to get them to identify mugshots of the hundred-plus pre-selected inmates against whom the state was seeking evidence. Time and again, the prisoner failed to identify the man whom the investigator had already decided to pursue, and so that investigator would push and push, even telling the witness the name of the man they hoped he'd ID. Given enough pressure, prisoners often would cave, ultimately agreeing that they had, in fact, seen so-and-so committing an illegal act. Sometimes, though, even leading questions and outright pressuring of prisoners didn't get them to say what the investigators wanted to hear about a given suspect's actions. In these cases, a slightly different tactic was employed to get them to cooperate. When one very frightened prisoner was interviewed right after the retaking, he dutifully identified a fellow prisoner whose photo investigators kept trying to get him to name as Roger Champin. Investigators were very interested in gathering evidence against Champ because troopers had marked him on the day of the retaking as a leader of the rebellion. According to this witness, however, Champ was a really good guy. He had actually saved his life in D-Yard. His fellow investigators, however, kept pushing this man to say Champ had done something illegal. Ultimately frustrated, one investigator exclaimed in disgust, I don't want to hear anything about that from them niggers. When strong-arm tactics still proved ineffective, they switched their approach. Should this witness help them, investigators suggested, they would, in turn, help him get paroled. In addition to enticing the witness with the possibility of parole, they also promised to make prison life easier for him in the meantime. As this man later testified, one of Simonetti's own non-BCI investigators, Ernest Mildy actually put $5 on his commissary account three different times, and he said that this investigator had done the same for at least three other would-be prisoner witnesses. Prisoners were susceptible to the promise of early release, and in time some were paroled after cooperating with Fisher's committee. No one from Simonetti's office decried this practice in which prisoners and ex-prisoners have been subjected to pressure to cajole them into being witnesses for the state. Nor did anyone intervene when the investigators began offering not only parole, but also commuting sentences and granting pardons. State prosecutors merely doubled down on such sweet carrots with some strong sticks. 
Should a prisoner change his mind later about testifying on behalf of the state, state prosecutors readily reminded him that the penalty for refusal to testify is four years for contempt of court. Perhaps the greatest incentive for a given prisoner to support prosecutor efforts was neither avoiding a beating nor securing the promise of parole, but was instead the threat of being indicted himself. As stated in a prisoner lawyer's affidavit, many of the Attica investigation's witnesses testified for the state because of, among other things, the generalized threats of future indictments. This was exactly why prisoner David Hightower ended up cooperating. Investigators first visited Hightower on September 19, 1971, when he was in bad shape, having been severely beaten during the retaking six days earlier. Genuinely thinking they were there to investigate wrongdoings he might have witnessed, Hightower proceeded to tell them about an incident he claimed to have seen in the hospital in the hours after the retaking, a black prisoner being killed by three correction officers. Not only did the investigators refuse to take this information down, but they also made it clear he was to repeat this story to no one. As Hightower later swore under oath, the agents from the BCI promised that if I cooperated with them, I would be able to get out of jail quickly. They promised to help me with medical treatment for my eye, but threatened to indict me for a crime of sodomy that I allegedly committed in the yard if I did not cooperate with them. Threats, whether overt or subtle, and bribes, whether immediate or promised, worked wonders. Whether or not a prisoner had any knowledge of the event in question, or believed that state prosecutors had the wrong man in their sights, they often ended up cooperating. As prisoner rights lawyers pointed out, one such man, Willie Locke, had been interviewed by one of the state's chief investigators, Ernest Mildy, at least five different times during an 18-month period, and he insisted for more than a year that he knew nothing about the death of the two inmates found dead, Hess and Schwartz. However, after being subjected to unrelenting, long-drawn-out pressure, with a judicious use of both stick and carrot, Locke eventually agreed to become a half-hearted prosecution witness. Rather than worry about exactly how Simonetti was building his cases against Attica's prisoners, as 1971 wore on, Robert Fisher focused on the fact that, in his view, Rockefeller's office was not giving his investigative efforts sufficient funding. It particularly irked him that state funds had also gone to the McKay Commission, and he felt that his investigators' job was much tougher than theirs. Rockefeller's attorney Michael Whiteman agreed that Fisher's request for funding should be reviewed by Budget and Counsel's office, and on July 5, 1972, Fisher finally heard via Robert Douglas that Rockefeller had approved his request for more funding, although it would be limited to the next three months. Eventually, by December of that year, after many back-and-forth battles over his budget, Fisher was able to net the Attica investigation a permanent investigative staff of between 10 and 20 men. Meanwhile, the prisoners were trying to cope with the investigation in any way they could. 33. Seeking Help Fifty-year-old George Jones was so depressed by how he was treated at Attica following the rebellion 
that at 4.45 a.m. on November 19, 1971, he asked a CO to put him on the sick call list for the next day. Shortly before 6 o'clock a.m., he was found hanged in his cell by his bedsheet. Most of the men at Attica tried instead to protest all that they were enduring through subtle and small acts of rebellion. They refused to eat or shower, take their medications or get haircuts. One man refused his meals as well as his medications on both October 13 and 14, just as he had done on September 18. On October 16, he again refused his meals. Then, on October 17, yet another prisoner refused noon meal and said he would not eat for 30 days, while scores of others refused showers. By the 20th of that month, even more prisoners were declining to eat their evening meal or to take medications and showers. Such quiet and largely individual protests continued well into December. Other Attica prisoners fought back more publicly by trying to seek help in the legal system. Many individual prisoners tried, for example, to sue the state for damages. By December 14, 1971, 506 Attica prisoners had filed notices of intent to file claim. Still others exerted pressure on lawyers such as William Hellerstein and Herman Schwartz to keep fighting on their behalf, not to give up after Judge John T. Curtin refused to grant a permanent injunction against prisoners being interrogated without legal counsel and against their physical abuse. When they had sought this injunction, with inmates of Attica v. Rockefeller, these lawyers were prepared to keep pushing Curtin. For starters, they kept presenting Curtin with additional accounts indicating that prisoners' rights were being violated in the hope that he would again issue at least a temporary injunction. Curtin ultimately did hold hearings on September 30, October 4, and October 5 to consider their new evidence. There, he heard testimony from Vincent Mancusi, Clarence Jones in his capacity as a member of the Goldman panel, Arthur Eve, and six prisoners, including Frank Lott, Roger Champin, and Herbert Blyden. To the prisoners' dismay, though, Curtin still concluded on October 6 he could not issue an injunction, in view of the steps being taken to protect the inmates' constitutional rights and personal belongings, and the absence of evidence of continuation of physical abuse. And so, prisoners' lawyers filed an appeal with the Second Circuit. They also tried to take the issue of the men's Sixth Amendment rights being violated straight to the U.S. Supreme Court. They asked Justice Thurgood Marshall to weigh in, but he wanted the whole court to hear it. The U.S. Supreme Court, however, declined to issue a stay on October 12, 1971. Attica's men and their lawyers didn't give up. Five more prisoners, this time including Jerry the Jew Rosenberg, also sought injunctive relief in the court of Judge Curtin, charging that their civil rights were being violated, both because they were still being held in segregation and because they had no legal protections during Fisher's investigation and had been given no notice of any charges against them. In this instance, Judge Curtin issued an order on November 12, 1971, to force Attica's officials to respond to the charges. And respond they did. Attica's deputy superintendent, Leon Vincent, testified in Curtin's court that 38 convicts at the prison were being held in segregation and denied privileges because they were a threat to the institution. 
but he said that no one's civil rights were being denied because these men got out in the yard about once a week on the average and had time to walk around it three times before they were led back to their cells. After his testimony, Curtin again decided to take some time to make a final decision on these men's fate. From the perspective of the prisoners and their supporters, Curtin had let them down. In their view, this was how things always worked. As they explained it, this tortuous process of delay, appeals, and procedural haggling was precisely the same type of legal response that contributed to the atmosphere of total distrust and frustration that led to the uprising of September 1971. Yet again, these prisoners' pleas to be let out of solitary ultimately went unheeded. And yet, the prisoners' various legal efforts to get a judge to take their side at Attica had hardly been wasted. On December 1, 1971, the three-judge panel of the Second Circuit Court of Appeals, ruling on Curtin's original denial of injunctive relief back on September 14, finally issued its decision. Although this higher court refused to grant a preliminary injunction that would have barred state authorities from questioning all Attica inmates concerning the recent prison uprising until the inmates had consulted lawyers, it did overrule Curtin on the issue of protecting prisoners from physical abuse. The author of the decision, Judge Walter R. Mansfield, was unequivocal not only that the prisoners had proven they had endured unimaginable abuses, but that such barbarism must stop immediately. Mansfield wrote that the abuse his court had learned of far exceeded what our society will tolerate on the part of officers of the law in custody of defenseless prisoners. And though these men were incarcerated, they were still entitled to protection against cruel and unusual punishment by the Eighth Amendment. The appeals court's ruling read as a particular castigation of Curtin's original decision on this issue. Because prisoners are at the mercy of their keepers, the court opined, preliminary injunctive relief should have been granted against further physical abuse, tortures, beatings, or similar conduct. Curtin may well have been relieved that he had been overruled on this issue. Indeed, some had speculated at the time that Curtin had written his decision as he had, that there was abuse but then not granting the injunction, so that he would be easily overruled by a higher court. As attorney William Hellerstein saw it, he gave us a way to appeal it. The truth was that Curtin was between a rock and a hard place when it came to Attica. The very same week he was overruled by the appellate court, Curtin had received a letter from a group calling itself Women in Support of State Correctional Employees, saying that they would hold him directly responsible for any injuries or deaths to correction employees or inmates at Attica Correctional Facility or any other correctional facility that results from any injunction or decision made by you. Once he had been overruled by the Second Circuit Court of Appeals, though, he had no choice but to issue an injunction, no matter what CO's wives threatened, and on December 14, 1971, he did. As he stipulated, defendants, their agents and employees, including state police and Department of Correctional Services personnel, are immediately prohibited and enjoined from subjecting inmates at the Attica Correctional Facility to physical abuse, torture, beatings, or other forms of brutality, from threatening such conduct or from authorizing, sanctioning, or permitting such conduct. And it is further ordered 
that plaintiffs be permitted to maintain as a class action their claim for injunctive relief against brutality. And yet the abuses continued. A mere two weeks after Curtin's directive to Mancusi, attorneys from the National Lawyers Guild again had to go back to Judge Curtin and ask him to hold Attica's COs in contempt for ignoring his December 14 injunction. They also wanted federal monitors. In hearings held within Attica Prison before U.S. Magistrate Edmund Maxwell, much evidence of contempt was heard, including an incident when Richard Clark had tried to read the injunction aloud to fellow prisoners in an elevator. A guard cursed him with a racial epithet and ordered him to stand with his nose against the rear wall of the elevator. When Clark refused, he was then confined to a cell for 24 hours a day. Another incident involved a prisoner being repeatedly subjected to racial slurs, threats, and beatings. Another, Frank Big Black Smith, had been cursed, threatened with death, threatened with physical torture, and almost constantly harassed by more than one guard. And Maxwell seemed relatively sympathetic to their plight. When prisoners, including Richard Clark, told the judge that four COs had very purposefully stationed themselves near the thick steel door and barred windows of the room to intimidate them as they were meeting with him, these COs were directed to leave by Maxwell. Although Judge Curtin was more dubious and deemed these legal claims of contempt sketchy, he was willing to amend the injunction on December 23 so that it more specifically enjoined prison personnel from physical abuse, torture, beatings, or other forms of brutality, including verbal abuse and racial slurs, from threatening such conduct or from authorizing or permitting such conduct. Regarding the issue of whether the COs were in fact acting in contempt of his order, Curtin stated that he would need more evidence to issue such a directive. Various jurists' ambivalence toward Attica's prisoners in the fall and winter of 1971 made prisoners vulnerable to the investigation being conducted by the BCI and to the indictments sought by Simonetti's office. Because the courts had failed to put an end to days and months of interrogation techniques that, according to prisoner advocates, included not only open intimidation, physical torture, threats of indictment and counter-promises of early parole, but also such improper police methods as naming a photo before showing it to a witness for identification. State investigators were, by the close of 1971, well armed with evidence, much of it false, coerced, or corrupt, to take to a grand jury. A mere 13 months after the start of their investigations, the state was ready to seek criminal indictments against more than 60 prisoners. 34. Indictments All Around An Attica grand jury had been convened less than three months after the prison's retaking, and Simonetti's office was eager to present the evidence it had collected to this body. This grand jury had been seated in the town of Warsaw, which was in the same county as Attica, and housed quite a few COs. State officials had defended this choice of site, a mere ten miles southeast of the village of Attica, by noting that there is no provision in the law for a statewide grand jury. Supreme Court Justice Carmen F. Ball of West Seneca was named to preside over this special term of the state Supreme Court in Wyoming. Within six hours of hearing this news, 
attorneys for the prisoners from the National Lawyers Guild, NLG, had moved for a change of venue. By late fall of 1971, the NLG had a substantial presence in the area and felt strongly that the men at Attica would not have a fair hearing in Warsaw, since the jury would necessarily be all white and its members would undoubtedly be personally acquainted with some of the prison guards. Judge Ball dismissed the request. He also refused to let the NLG lawyers representing prisoners ask vital questions of the prospective jurors about their views on the rebellion or connections to the prison. Thus, when the grand jury first convened on December 8, 1971, not only was it an all-white jury of 13 men and 10 women, but nine out of the 23 admitted having friends who worked as guards at Attica, and two of the nine had friends who were held hostage, one of whom was killed. Furthermore, the foreman, Raymond Becker, had been a close friend of one of the dead hostages and ran the Attica school bus system, which also employed prison guards. Of all the crimes that had occurred at Attica, prosecutors were most interested in indicting any prisoner involved with the death of William Quinn, the correction officer who had died from the injuries he had sustained in Times Square on the morning of the rebellion. They were also determined to prosecute the men who had been involved in killing prisoners Barry Schwartz, Kenneth Hess, and Michael Privetera in D-Block. And they wanted to charge every prisoner who had been involved in taking a correction officer hostage with the crime of kidnapping. Finally, state officials wanted to levy numerous other charges against prisoners for acts ranging from sexual assault to wielding a makeshift weapon. To get indictments against these men, Simonetti was depending on the testimony given by prisoners interrogated over the preceding months by BCI and his own investigators. And to help ensure that they cooperated, Simonetti wrote to the chairman of the Wyoming County Board of Supervisors, insisting that we should make it as simple as possible to get such inmate witnesses into the grand jury to testify, and then out of the courthouse without chance of exposure to the public or press. The result was that those prisoners who had agreed to testify on the state's behalf were brought to the jury fully hooded so that the public couldn't see who they were and, once they had testified, were immediately transferred to other institutions, as the prisoners put it, allegedly for their own protection. Most of the men who had agreed to offer evidence had no intention of backing out. They either were expecting the reward of early release from prison once they had testified or feared the consequences if they didn't. As one prisoner put it, I knew that the things I was saying were untrue. I knew that I was lying. But once he had agreed to testify, no one bothered him. Another witness said, after the terror he'd experienced at the hands of the troopers in D-Yard, by the time attorney generals, or whoever it was, the BCI came to see me, I would have testified to my mama doing something. There were a few prisoners who did have second thoughts about lying to the grand jury and tried not to testify after all. When Flip Crowley was about to be called to the witness stand, he became plagued with guilt. As soon as he arrived at the courthouse, he asked to see his lawyer, Barbara Hanshew, hoping that she could help him get out of testifying. Instead of allowing him to speak to his attorney, however, a state trooper pulled a gun on him, a very large gun, and looked at me and looked at his partner and said, Hey, did you see that nigger try to jump out the window? Who did you say you wanted to see? 
Fearing for his life, Crowley cooperated with them. Sure enough, he was later informed that prior to my coming in, they, members of the parole board, were not disposed to rule favorably in my way, but after testifying, I come quite highly recommended. Jerry Newport, another prisoner who later filed an affidavit saying he had been tricked into testifying for the grand jury, also had second thoughts and tried to contact his lawyer, also Barbara Hanshu, to see if she could prevent his being subpoenaed by the grand jury to give testimony that he didn't believe was true. He heard nothing. He complained repeatedly about not having representation. Officials responded that he didn't need a lawyer. Nothing he said could hurt him, and that if he went along with them, in return he would be transferred to Napanok, a medium-security prison, where it would be much easier for him to serve his time. Ten days passed, and he still hadn't heard back from Hanshu. Newport became more apprehensive and frightened. Then someone from the Bureau of Criminal Investigation told him that neither Barbara Hanshu nor any other lawyer was going to help him, and, because Newport was by now in a sufficiently scared state of mind to believe the suggestion, he did testify before the grand jury in August 1972. It turned out the letter Newport had asked a CO to mail to his lawyer wasn't sent until the day after he testified. Even former members of the Observers Committee were being pulled into the grand jury proceedings. As Arthur Eve wrote to his fellow committee members, something of an emergency is developing because some members of the committee have already been called by the Wyoming County Grand Jury in connection with the Attica indictments. What was most disturbing to him, as well as to prisoner support organizations and lawyers around the state, was that there appeared to be highly selective presentation of testimony to the grand jury, and that no witnesses who had given contradictory testimony to the investigators early on in their probe were being called to testify, so the grand jury didn't even know such contradictions existed. State prosecutors were particularly careful to not allow any contradictory evidence before the grand jury when trying to make cases against the prisoners accused of murder. With regard to the killing of Barry Schwartz, state investigators spent endless hours grooming four prisoner witnesses, Dallas Simon, Warren Cronin, John Flowers, and Willie Locke, to say that they had seen one of the members of the rebellion's security team, Shango, Bernard Strobel, commit the crime. Given that grudges existed between men in prison, as in any insular community, State investigators didn't always need to use coercion to get one prisoner to turn against another. Johnny Flowers told fellow prisoner Ed Kowalczyk, while they both sat in a holding pen waiting to go before the grand jury, that he was going to get Shango and was eager to testify against him, simply because he was pissed at him because of an argument they had had when Schwartz had been removed from D-Yard and locked up in the cell. The jurors never learned that some of the witnesses they heard from had been nowhere near the scenes of the crimes, nor were they told that many of the state's witnesses had told multiple versions of whom they had seen commit these crimes. By December of 1972, little more than a year after it had first been convened, the Attica Grand Jury was ready to hand down the first of two major sets of indictments. From then on, the Attica investigation was awash in funds. While Simonetti may have felt that he'd had to fight tooth and nail to get funding for independent investigators, 
After the indictments were handed down, the amount of money given his inquiry grew exponentially. Records indicate that from April of 1972 to March of 1973, he drew $1,910,000 from state funds. From April of 1973 to March of 1974, his office spent another $2,065,000. And between April of 1974 and March of 1975, it went through another $4,546,000. By 1974, Simonetti would have a full-time and fully funded staff of 20 specially appointed attorneys general, 28 special investigators, and 27 clerks, stenographers, and accountants. Ultimately, the grand jury sitting in Wyoming County returned 42 separate felony indictments. The first 30 were filed in December 1972, and 12 more followed, that charged 63 prisoners with 1,289 crimes. A journalist for the nation noted, despite the fact that 10 hostages, as well as 29 prisoners, died from the state's gunfire, the grand